Hello, and welcome everybody to the Six Pixels Under podcast. I am Nerd Slayer, your host. This is episode 54. On this week's podcast, we're going to talk about all things MMO. I don't really have any other topics that are not MMO related, except maybe sort of one, I guess if you want to call it that. So I'll give you an outline of uh, what we're going to be talking about today. Also, I wanted to point out that I will be joined today by uh, currently uh, Card and Limpos. They will be joining me on the podcast as uh, discussion members. As you guys remember, we're changing the way that we're going to structure the uh, show. So it's more of like a back and forth with the community. So if you want to sign up for the podcast, just got to be a little bit more active in Discord so you can get that rank up to junior detective. Once you're a junior detective, then you can get invited to do a uh, podcast. Yeah. So. Anyway, here are the topics of the week. They're going to be Arcage Unchained, of course, is launching tomorrow and recently said that they are uh, disabling uh, item gifting, which has been a big thing of discussion. There's been a new studio by an ex-MMO designer from Guild Wars 2. Uh, I don't know what he's doing yet. I also talked to uh, that small-time developer slash uh, MMO that I showcased last week a little bit, uh, Slay Together. And um, I'm probably going to be doing a showcase of it on my channel. So that's pretty cool. But I'll talk to you guys more about that some other time. I'm also trying to do more of that kind of stuff. Like anytime I can get exclusive hands-on, you know, footage of me playing something new and experiencing it, I'm trying to do that because I know that exclusives and, and all that jazz is very attractive for people to watch as well. And, you know, it's cool to watch me be, be able to experience that stuff because, you know, you can trust me to kind of know what's what. Um, we also are going to talk a little bit about some more interesting revelations on the Shroud of the Avatar story. Um, that's pretty interesting. Hey, BitVictim, thanks for the... <laughs> nice name, by the way. <laughs> thanks for the 100 bits. Um, also, Daybreak was hit with more uh, layoffs, it looks like, and these were confirmed. So apparently Daybreak is going, uh, or undergoing, rather, a realignment, whatever that means. We'll talk about that later. And then finally, the probably... The most discussed topic of the week we have to cover it um i didn't plan anything honestly i didn't do like a whole lot of research um i didn't plan some big spread but we're going to talk about blizzard finally speaking up on the hong kong ban and, and yeah the, everything that goes with that that's going to be a bit crazy so um i'll probably try and save that one for last also this week's mmo roundtable if you guys remember each uh, week we have an mmo roundtable now it's become the podcast but we still have a question each week and last week, we posed a question that we figured we'd um, carry into this week. And that was uh, the weekly topic is, what are your thoughts on the current state of MMO journalism? So specifically, MMO journalism. You can talk about gaming journalism, but just specifically MMO journalism. All right. Uh, that's pretty much all of the topics we're going to be covering today. Um, let me see if I'm missing anything else. Um, well, first off, I should say hello. Uh, how is your 14th of October, uh, Monday, early my time, but if you're EU, it's probably a little bit later for you. Hopefully the stream's not get, getting any crazy like uh, problems again, because it wasn't letting me stream at first, it was giving people an error, so it looked like we were about to go stream on uh, YouTube. Um, also the sweater, it's finally cold here, it's, it's pretty awesome, so I get to wear things like sweaters, and I like wearing sweaters. All right, um, let's go... Uh, Talk to Card and Limpos, see what they're up to. Hey, what's up, guys? Hey, hey. Hello, hello. All right, everybody. Um, well, welcome 
back, I should say, to the podcast. <laughs> uh, two long-standing members of the community and also the podcast. Um, the first thing that I wanted to talk about is ArcAge. And, of course, ArcAge is uh, relaunching as Unchained tomorrow. And there's been a bunch of, of course, <laughs> news about that recently. But more specifically, the one that we have on the docket was they disabled item gifting from the uh, cash shop. So it really looks like at this point, they also, um, there's another post and I'm probably not gonna be able to find it, maybe Brawley can, but there was another post that they confirmed that um, as well as the item gifting, you won't be, or they won't add certain cosmetics based on certain parameters. So of course they could just change their mind, but they at least having that outline of like, we're not going to overcross these certain boundaries. I don't know. I, I'm thinking that Arcage Unchained at the moment, it doesn't look like the business model is going to be the problem. What do you guys think? I would agree that they seem to be aiming for not being paid to win and being fairly fair with their, um, um, their store model, which, as you say, can, of course, change. Um, the rest of their performance is, of course, a bit underwhelming, as we've sort of uh, talked about on Discord, that uh, the amount of service they're putting up don't seem to be enough, at least from what we can sort of tell. And that's a bit problematic, because full service is just, or sitting in queue for hours is just, it's not a good sell for well, not a new MMO, but a relaunching MMO. And it's like, people already have a, a bad taste in their mouth in regards to the game. Um, I'm uncertain why. I'm not entirely sure if it's because they think a bunch of people, or if they don't have an idea how many people are going to play it, or if they have... Um, uh, actually... Uh, Next point, or if it's actually monetary reasons, because I do have somewhat of a suspicion that might actually be because of monetary reasons that they might not want to risk too much, like opening a bunch of servers and then having to shut them down later. I'm not entirely sure how much the cost of that is, of course. That's my points. Yeah, I think uh, I talked on this on this one earlier as well as like it's in the form of their performance, like and with the service, it feels like they are planning a little bit for failure right now. And that's uh, somewhat worrying. But also when you look at the company behind it, Gamico, it seems to sort of like fit with what they do. They have a lot of these smaller games that are just individually not great, but they're all profitable. I guess it's really bad. But yeah, Card actually makes a really good point that the company itself, I think it's the first time they're actually launching an MMO, isn't it? Uh, people say that you're muted to them, nerd. Oh no, I muted myself. <laughs> All right. 
I'm not muted anymore. Apparently, I have a mute button on my on my uh, stream, and I don't know what button it is. So I'm, whatever it is, I'm not gonna hit my keyboard anymore. Oh, <laughs> uh, what I was gonna say was that um, I, I I agree with Card, of course, because we talked about it previously. That it like what you see with a lot of developers, um, and in this case, a publisher really, um, when they operate with certain uh, properties like MMO properties. Whenever they have a launch coming, even if it's supposed to be a hyped product, if it always seems like you're thinking, how come they always seem like like so um, pessimistic about how many servers? Like it always seems like they have less servers than they need. It's like, well, there's an obvious reason for that, right? It's because they're trying to cut the cost. They don't want to have to put up as many servers as possible, and then off, uh, also have to worry about consolidating. The problem is, is I think that they use the consolidation or server transfer thing. It's kind of like a smokescreen because I hear it, I hear it said a lot in in my research. They'll say like, you know, they'll say that exact thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I just it, it just seems like a bit of a I don't know. It it seems a bit backhanded to be like, well, actually, we just don't want to shell out the cash to <laughs> to have enough servers is is really the problem. Um, so I would say that there's some merit of reason to the logic there. Um, people tend to be a bit discomfortable with um, having to have service merges because it's a bunch of new people uh, coming in. It's oftentimes somewhat of a different matter, somewhat different behavior that suddenly comes in and invades your society, essentially. Um, it can be a bit hard to take on, but I think most people would probably prefer that instead of having to sit in queues and having unstable servers just because they didn't want to dish out the cash for it. Yeah, it, it, I think um, Raleigh kind of said it like in, in reality, they just want to cut the costs for having less servers. And it's because it's like they've said already that they're capable of scaling up to more servers. And so you just ask the question, okay, so then why don't you just do it? And ultimately, would it decrease the amount of problems they would have at launch? Absolutely. But it's sort of like a thing where they're expecting to have a certain amount of uh, burn off, you know, a certain amount of runoff, as most MMOs do within the first couple of months. Um, and maybe they're not having enough faith in the product uh, for that reason. Uh, but at the same time, I can understand that, of course, you can't just go ahead and put a bunch of money into a product that you don't necessarily know if it's going to garner the attention. The problem is, is that it already is showing that it's garnering the attention and they're still not increasing the amounts of the servers. For example, like, uh, there's multiple servers on EU and NA that they had to faction lock uh, people from reserving characters because there's so many people on one side of the faction. And then like Alexander, the the biggest EU server, the, the first EU server, if you will, is already like full both sides. <laughs> that, that kept happening for multiple days. They had to restrict people from doing it. And you're asking restrict people that seems like a strange word to use whenever you're about to launch an mmo but it's because they just don't want to have to deal with the cost and i think that that's just like that's one of those things where it's like you're pinching pennies in reality you're losing far 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 more from that you're losing like a uh people's respect whenever you have like a shitty launch um you're you're losing the respect of your own customers when they have to sit in queue right because they just want to play the game uh and i, I don't know i just think that that's my biggest fear tomorrow is that it's just going to be <laughs> a big uh, clown fiesta. But um, I want to say also that 
and I think Limpos and Card have also played the game, so maybe they can talk about it as well. But with Arcage Unchained, like I'm enjoying the game, and I feel like if I'm enjoying the game and I'm a pretty critical person, I think that there's a good amount of people who could enjoy the game, like especially casual fans. I think they could really enjoy the game, especially the combat system. It's going to feel very different, very new right now. And with all of the Hong Kong Blizzard news, like we'll talk about later, people might be willing to jump ship from uh, uh, WoW at the moment, especially because Honor's not out yet, and at least try Arcage for a couple of months. So it's like, I think the game's going to have population and spades for the first couple of months. And I think that the game, based on my uh, testing experiences of it, and I've had like four or five level 30s now, um, just doing the process over and over again with different types of builds with my friends, um, I've enjoyed the game. And I think that my biggest fear of the game is if it eventually does trend towards more like arena-based combat and open world type of combat starts to get kind of phased out. That That is a fear that I have with games like uh, Arcade, just because of their... Korean influences are very like prominently used in arena type games. I mean, Blade and Soul is literally an arena game, <laughs> uh, as an example, and that's an NC Soft MMO. Uh, but I don't know. What do you guys think about Arcade Unchained? I mean, I will admit I didn't play the original Arcade that far. I think I got to max level and then did a bit of the grinding, but then sort of stopped because, like, it was sort of in the uh, <laughs> it was in the signs that yeah, this this. This was a mistake by Tryon to implement all this stuff. Um, I think without it, it's certainly a very decent MMO. It's an MMO that actually has a lot of potential for a lot of fun because there is a lot of things that you can do in that game. And the PvP is also very interesting how it sort of works with the different zones. There's pirates. Heck, you can attack your own faction if you want. That's quite rare to find mm -hmm. in a um, PvP MMO that you can do that. So there's certainly a lot of uh, potential for it to become um, popular and entertaining. But it does also have, I mean, it does have some problems. It can end up being very grindy, but I wouldn't call that the biggest concern. I think um, for buy to play game, as long as it's just, as long as it stays on a fair model and not pay to win at least then yeah i mean as long as you own the game you might as well play it once in a while and um yeah that's that's it <laughs> yeah i think uh, and i hope the audio works now i think it's uh gameplay wise it's a fairly reasonable and competent game and that actually on its own will just be fairly much of a good enough draw for people and i think for a more casual audience uh which in many ways i am uh when playing these kind of games quite often it's like it works really well you can just go in there you can do your thing and there is a lot of options that you can join and you can you know partake within your group content and actually do something together which you know like people who was talking about uh with uh world of warcraft classic and it's like yeah, there are some things you can do, but it's actually relatively limited because it's most of the content is very much set in stone. Well, as in a game like Arcade, you're going to have more uh, options uh, to play around with. Yeah, I would generally say it's a good idea to give quite a bit of freedom to the player because players are quite good at uh, inventing things to do out of, well, either boredom, necessity, or just because they feel like it, essentially. And 
Arc Age is, I think, one of the better MMOs for that. Um, I unfortunately haven't really played other MMOs that I would probably think did a better job of it, but this is the closest that we sort of have right now, at least. I'm excited. Um, I'm obviously going to have tempered expectations, as most of you should, when it comes to MMO launches, period, <laughs> especially Arcage. Um, but I definitely think, you know, the point that you made, Limpos, of once you own the game, I think that they have a really good chance to continue to build on that uh, audience base. I mean, that's what Gamago does as a company. Um, when we were looking at their financials, Cardin and I, we sort of noticed that it's funny, you can kind of look at their website and their stable uh, of MMOs and games in general, and you kind of want to be like flippant and be like, oh, no, what are these games? I've never heard of these games. But it's like, you might not have heard of them because they're not in your market, but it's like they're actually doing pretty well. What they do is they run a tight ship with their free-to-play games, um, and they uh, keep producing new content and then slowly monetize that same audience. And, and most of those games have pretty fair uh, monetization models where it gets crazy and where Gamago gets the worst rep is that they have a Russian division. <laughs> as you can imagine. <laughs> and uh, that one, of course, as most Russian MMO companies are, by the way, uh, is, pretty, is pretty crazy on the microtransactions. So like, I have had a lot of my Russian uh, audience come to tell me, hey, Gamago's horrible on <laughs> Russia. <laughs> Um, but um, I, I think that as long as um, they're able to quickly get new servers up, and I mean quickly, with like out there being as big as a hitch, I think that their whole idea of planning for failure could work. The problem is, is I often find that whenever developers try that, and mostly it's publishers, I don't think developers actually want to do that. It's more so a, a publisher in a relationship is wanting you to do that to cut cost, but uh, I guess we'll see, right? Even if you guys aren't going to play the game, I would I would watch the news tomorrow. Uh, go check out Reddit or whatever else and just see what's going to happen in regards to Arcage Unchained because either it's going to be really, really fun and we can play day one um, or it'll be like a lot of MMO launches where it'll be tons of problems that honestly could have probably been resolved if they just did a lot more planning um, or uh, I should say a little bit more planning and then specifically weren't... Um, weren't trying to plan for failure. That's just such a strange concept to me. It's so hard to be successful when you plan for failure. I mean, I don't even know if it's so much planning for failure. It might just be more carefully stocking assets in reasonable numbers and expectations of uh, sales. But I mean, it's the same end result, so to some extent it means the same. Um, but yeah, so far it does really seem like they, they're, they're undershooting what, they, what it seems like, at least. It can be hard to tell from time to time in that regard. I mean, one full server, that is true. Problem is, even though it's full with people, if they all play in different hours or at least somewhat varying hours that doesn't exactly mean the same thing then it's not going to be full the whole time which is probably also what they actually do to sort of prevent it ever going completely bonkers <laughs> uh someone was pointing out uh 
and is now way clouded by our past. Funny. Um, I, on screen, I was just showcasing one of the developers basically confirming that the ability to gift items from the in-game premium marketplace was disabled, um, which is a pretty big deal for some people, uh, for sure, because they actually, actually, I didn't know that they said this here, but here's where they talked about the criteria. I didn't, I didn't realize it was the same post, but it says, we worked closely with you over the past six weeks to refine offerings in the premium item shop based on the following criteria. All premium items are cosmetic in nature or provide a non-essential gameplay service. Renames, costumes, character appearance, customization, or UCC. All premium items are bound to the character that purchased them and are not tradable through any in-game system. Mail, auction house, storage, chest, player-to-player -player trades. And then the gifting of premium items has been yeah, so They're so close to the finish line. Um... I should say, really, the first finish line, you know, like getting over the first huddle, uh, hurdle, I should say, because I think MMO launches are probably one of the hardest part of doing it, um, the, the whole process, right? Um, just because ultimately, as you guys know, if you fuck it up in the beginning, it's so hard to get people to get invested back into your game. Now, part of that is because of business models, of course, and buy to play is a little bit easier to come back to if there is a problem. But in the case of Arcage, I just think that they've exhausted so much of their goodwill on the name. And uh, to be fair, that's not on Game Go. <laughs> no, no, it is. Yeah, it is. That's on Prime. <laughs> yeah, when I say they, I guess I'm saying there's still original developers involved in the game, and I'm not going to say that they were the reason that all of the problems happened. Because as we know, things are very complex. Sometimes uh, you have people above you telling you to do it this way, and you're a developer. You're just trying to make art, but what are you supposed to do? That whole thing. What is the deal in this regard with um, GameMigo and the developer? Like, um, uh, GameMigo is also the publisher of the developers themselves, or they're just um, redistribution um, publisher to like the Western audience. So they um, they own a uh, they've created their own, I guess, like development company specifically for Arcage. Uh, which is a mixture of old, a couple old developers from Arcage, and then also, uh, you know, the new Gamago team. The reason why they don't have to have that big of a team is because they don't actually do development, really. You know, like they're they're more like, if anything, Gamago's team is more like a bug fixing team, community outreach team, a QA team, and then uh, the customer service. You know, that's like because if you think it's, about it's it, a franchise. Yeah, yeah, exactly, because. When, when, truly like the big changes and all the big decisions come from korea <laughs> like korea over there is what comes over here it's never like over here we've created like all oh, this oh, totally new game it's like we're always behind korea so in terms of content it's hard to ever think about it in the sense of like oh game ago maybe they can do something different it's like they're just going to be maintaining it basically so hopefully they can do a good job of that because um I think, you know, it's safe to say that Jake Song being back involved heavily with Arcage has people thinking that maybe the game will be more open world-esque instead of more arena-centric. But we'll see. I still think that regardless if there's new content, there's plenty of content already in the game to experience that's worth the 25 to 30 bucks. But uh, if, you're, if you're apprehensive about how launch is going to go, maybe 
you could wait a day if you really didn't want to spend the money, but <laughs> I feel like that's almost part of the fun being there launch day to go through all the shit, you know? Like you guys remember when I did a, a stream and I had to wait like five hours to play Classic WoW and then I was like so exhausted the first day. <laughs> nope. Some of us got in immediately. Yeah. And some of y'all got in immediately. So yeah, that that was my experience. All right, let's talk about something else. Uh yeah, Crowlin is the guy in particular. Do I know anything about him? Uh when, from what I've seen of him and what I remember from him in Arc Age the first time around, he kind of seemed like a non-essential figure. And I don't mean to say that in an offensive way. It's just, once again, uh, I already kind of backed up what I said in the sense that all the big changes come from Korea. So the the Western developers have always been proxies, really. Like, they're not necessarily coming up with big, massive changes. They're just reacting to the feedback and trying to localize the game as best as possible. That's really what they are. They're localizationers. <laughs> Translators. Uh, yeah, I like, the, I like what Card said, though. Franchisers is a good way to put it. Um, that's what Gamago reminds me of as a company, for sure, because they acquire a lot of little games and then kind of run those successfully. Uh, here's the next topic I wanted to get into. A former Guild Wars 2 designer apparently has opened up a new studio and raised $3.3 in funding. Who was it that was? Which developer? Yeah. It's it's Roy Kronacher, I think is how you pronounce it. Or Kron, I'm not sure. Kronacher? Kronacher? Hmm. Okay. Not, not sure, but it, apparently they formed a... It says there's other former Guild Wars 2 devs. Of course, they don't tell us those names. <laughs> it could be anybody. It could be a, a QA tester, but uh, known as Tenacious Entertainment and has successfully raised $3.3 to fund the team in its debut effort. So, I mean... Mobile games focus, right? Oh, yeah. Let's see. It says it down here. It says, according to statements shared by VentureBeat, is looking to shake up mobile gaming, promising free-to-play titles that focus on... Comp I hate the word free-to-play. Anyway, free-to-play titles that focus on competitive play without resorting to pay-to-win monetization schemes. Really? Y'all got 3.3 million in uh, funding, and you're not going to make money? Hmm. The studio's debut title will be a competitive arena combat game, which is due to release sometime in 2020. Man, uh, how this ends up in MMO news, I I'm always confused by shit like this. Is this? We don't even know if this is going to be an MMO, do we? It sounds like it's going to be a MOBA or some shit. Well, sounds like it. Didn't it say arena something? Yes, yeah, it's competitive arena combat game, which I sounds... mean, that's not an MMO. <laughs> that's yeah, sort of the opposite. <laughs> um, competitive arena combat I mean, game. I mean, I'm. I'm just going to say pass because I have just zero interest in mobile games, really. It's, it's never had an interest. It's like, I mean, I barely take my phone with me half of the time. Why the heck would I even be interested in it? I mean, it's sort of sad to see because I think Guild Wars 2 development team does have a lot of talent. And to see it being wasted on something like a freaking mobile game is uh, quite sad, really. It doesn't have to be wasted. I mean, I'm not interested in mobile games either, but if 
if they, what they're planning is true, they're planning for something that actually is competitive and not pay to win. I mean, the mobile market could use uh, games like that. Yeah, but that's not for me, Card, okay? Let me be egotistical. I know. But no, but no, you do actually make a really, really good point that, yeah, it's not wasted talent if they actually end up making a really solid, say, uh, buy to play or an arena game which has like only sell skins or stuff like that. Yeah, that is a good point. That uh, if that is what they end up making, then yeah, then it's not wasted talent. Anyway, I'm already bored on this uh topic because why is this even mentioned on massively OP? But anyway, I guess because it had Guild Wars 2 devs, which is close enough that, that's how much we're reaching in mmo journalism these days it's just like anything that's like slightly related to an mmo is is news now which we'll, we'll have to talk about that more later once we get to the round table we've got some more topics to get through i'm going to skip ahead to um the whole shroud of the avatar stuff uh which I, this gets really confusing and honestly it's it's going to take way too long i feel like to build the whole basis of what exactly um, it's fairly simple. Well, it well, it's simple if you. <laughs> I have to be careful in how I explain it. It's it's simple if I if I don't have to be careful. But I will say that. Um, all right, Shroud of the Avatar. If you guys haven't been following this, I've talked about it on uh, my Kickstarter video. I've talked about it on stream before. It's not a game that's been taken very positively. It's probably closer to a multiplayer online RPG. Uh, they don't even call it massive anymore, but people have continued to keep calling it an MMO, so it gets lumped in with that crowd. But anyway, that was Richard Garriott's game that he got uh, crowdfunded, and that was the one that had a bunch of drama about uh, buying land for money and like a bunch of rich people having like complete monopolies on territories and then like making money off of that, like actual money. And and then apparently there's rumors that maybe developers were kind of aware of this, maybe even enabling it. Um, there's the whole raising like funds where they raised funds after their, uh, which most Kickstarters do, but after their Kickstarter, they, they kept continuing, sorry, to raise uh, crowdfunded money. But the way that they did it was like, I think they had like a $30,000 a keep or something like that. Like they had like ridiculously priced things. So that's been a big part of Shroud of the Avatar's uh, history, but it's also been at the same time, the game itself hasn't been seen as, you know, being very quality. And so people have been very critical of it on that front. And <clears throat> I'm sure that they've improved it since the last time that I got to experience it. And maybe we can do a, a re-up on that sometime. But then this news came out um, and this is just another extension of the news that we've heard I think earlier in the year where Richard Garriott no longer is even considered a CEO. And then he like came out and was like, Oh yeah, I'm not really a CEO by the way. And I'm like, all right, that's, that sounds like what somebody's going to do whenever they're pivoting off of something, right? Like they're like, Oh yeah, I wasn't really the CEO, bro. It's like, I mean, you were, but okay. And so that was like a big part of the drama. Um, and apparently they also got rid of their office. So now everybody's working remote and they were like, oh, no, don't worry. Everybody like it's no problem, guys, like working remote. There's no problems. We talked about that on the podcast. And then now this news comes out that Catnip Games, which is probably just some small company created by the guy who owns 
<laughs> catnip games uh, as a way of acquiring uh, the operating assets of Portalarium, which is the um, developer for Shroud of the Avatar. And so that means that um, Portalarium was founded or co-founded by, I believe, uh, it's Richard Garriott and what's his other guy? It's uh, something long, Star Long. Star Long is the other guy who he founded the company with. Those are the two guys that were also involved in Ultima Online. So that's why Shadow of the Avatar already had like an existing fan base because of Shadow of the Avatar. Sorry, because of uh, Ultima Online. And that was supposed to be almost like the spiritual successor of sorts. People were looking at Shroud of the Avatar like that. Oh, it actually says it right here. It says Star Long, the executive producer of Shroud of the Avatar, commented on the acquisition, noting that Chris, who is the guy, Chris Spears is the guy who established Catnip Games and served apparently as the CTO for Portalarium and now acquired the game, probably realizing it was uh, pretty cheap at the moment, right? <laughs> It says, uh, Chris has successfully led the design and the team for many years. He is an all-star A player. All right. Well, the fuck that, that last part means sounds really... What is this, football? Like, <laughs> he's an all-star A player. Um, anyway, Chris Spears added that the development team remains with the project, and we plan to continue with the established patterns of regular releases, frequent live broadcast, uh, broadcasts, community events, release parties, and a development cadence. Hmm. Never seen Cadence used in that context. All right. Cadence focused on both constantly improving the core game while also working towards episode two. Lowenstein Sandler, man, that's a badass name, provided legal counsel to... Okay, so I was just talking about the lawyer that was involved in the purchase. So I guess let me first get my thoughts out of the way. This just sounds like more crazy uh, story or more of the crazy story of Shroud of the Avatar. It's already had this pretty crazy story. I remember when I first started uh, following the game and covering it, um, it, I was just really surprised at, frankly speaking, how lack of polish it was. And that was just the biggest thing that I couldn't quite shake. And so every time they kept talking about these new fancy features, I'm sitting there looking at the combat system like, guys, if y'all don't fix this, nobody's going to play your game, even if it is RP-focused, even if it is like Ultima Online re Redux. And then, of course, their overall obsession with keeping it like Ultima Online in certain respects, just for no reason other than it's just like, Ultima Online did it, so let's do it as well. It, it clearly shows, uh, for me, Shroud of the Avatar has clearly shown that the biggest driving force behind Ultima Online was not Richard Garriott. It was Raph Koster. Because remember, he was the lead developer on that game. Him and his wife are credited with doing the majority of the creative work on Ultima Online. So I think that that Shroud of the Avatar has kind of just confirmed that for me. It's It seems like confirmation that I don't think Richard Garriott was the big driving force behind Ultima Online. And that's probably why we're finding out that his name isn't so sparkly clean. Especially, at, I mean, it hasn't been sparkly clean for a while, but it's not nearly as uh, pristine as it was before. I mean, Lord British was the guy who brought people to Shroud of the Avatar just because it was Lord British. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what to think anymore about this necessarily. It just seems like more opportunity to kind of shift uh, blame away, possibly maybe get rid of a hot potato, if you will. What do you guys think? Oh, I definitely think it's sort of getting rid of a uh, hot potato. And sort of just, I mean, it's probably sold like super cheap just to, just to be freaking rid of it and trying to recoup. Well, I don't know if they're trying to recoup losses. They probably ended up in, uh, at least in the black and not the red. But yeah, it's, 
man, it, it was it was a game sort of sold by um like somewhat famous person. I mean, uh, he might not be the one who's sort of ultimate, uh, behind ultimate uh, ultimate online, but didn't he make uh, like single player games prior to that that were quite well received? I mean, there's there's actually I believe Ultima the original Ultima is a single player game that was turned into an online game. Okay. Uh but yeah, and I mean I mean I have actually I actually got a code for the game by, uh, from a friend and it's like it's whew, it was like super terrible in just almost every single aspect and it's like uh, I can't even imagine how much went wrong with that game. And then just, I mean, there was just no saving it at that point, and I guess sort of just had to dump it and get on with it instead. Try and, uh, I don't know, try and start a new project. I don't think people have enough faith at this point to try and do that again. I find it funny that you're talking about from the game perspective, but the way I'm reading this post, I literally read business. I mean, the key thing that I'm reading here is in the first sentence, has acquired the operating assets of Portalarium. So they bought the assets, but not the company. And I think that's the whole key point that's going to be making this whole post. And that, I think, could lead to the further news on this. Because you're hmm. looking at uh, a company that's buying the assets of another company. That means they just take what they want. The other company still exists. So all of the, any debts, any issues, all of the obligations, as in the many Kickstarter obligations that have not been fulfilled, uh, okay. are still with the old company. And the old company, I will bet you within a month or two, is going to be bankrupt. Hmm. So they literally are just washing their hands clean of all of the old stuff right now. They can take the assets and they can literally like they probably got them for very little money, but probably just enough so that they don't get in legal trouble like oh you bought it for way less than it's worth so they probably did pay what it was worth which is probably not a whole lot at the moment and then they moved on with the assets and they can just you know with whatever fan base they got left they can keep exploiting them that's how i'm reading this so maybe i'm reading the very negative very dark side of it but that's how i feel I I mean I think that that's like a very interesting take and and I can I can see at this point that people are willing to see things like that just because ultimately of all of the other stuff no pun intended but ultimately because of all of the stuff that we talked about previously <clears throat> rather I talked about in my little monologue they um they they've kind of again like we were talking about with uh, the Archage name but in this case Portalarium and Shadow of the Avatar are just very negatively associated I mean if I go to to Twitch right now, or sorry, uh, to Steam right now. Let's go see what they're currently rated. It's probably not very good. Last time I checked, it was not very good. <clears throat> Excuse me. Overwhelmingly negative. I think it was last time I checked. Let's see. Wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> because that game is really underwhelmingly negative. All right, so fifty oh, percent overall. Recently, forty-four percent. Wow. Not that many reviews, actually, total. I mean, just over 2,000. 
Yeah, that's isn't that weird? It seems like there would have been more reviews. I don't think the game got that much fanfare when it came out, did it? No. I think it sort of was sort of a very slumbering towards release and didn't really have. I mean, they didn't have commercials. That's for darn sure. But I mean, I think people saw sort of saw the writing on the wall. It's like this was not going to be a success, so they yeah. probably just they probably dodged the bullet and also told others to dodge that bullet. So. I don't think the game sold particularly well. Yeah, no, I think you're right, actually. This guy says it right here. He says, I've been playing it since early alpha and have always looked past its uh, weaknesses. And so it's like, even this guy is like the self-aware, you know, uh, since the beginning guy, he's saying, like, I could even see it back then. He's like, I was willing to look past it. And um, that's what I remember the most about the game. So I think when they went to Steam, at that point, people already, like you said, were kind of like, eh, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. And then they saw kind of how it like shook out because that's how I approached it. And then they were like, oh, yeah, this is not so good. I mean, for me, it's also like I've got the interesting background. There's, of course, Charlie Avatar and Star Citizen where uh, roughly in the same time frame and the same ideas, of course, uh, when they were going up. And there was even a... Uh, if you pledge to either or something, then you would get a something Star Citizen related in Shadow of the Avatar and something Shadow of the Avatar related in Star Citizen. And you could just notice the massive difference in you know money that people were pledging to these games. You know, compare Shroud of the Avatar versus Star Citizen. And I know from a lot of people within the Star Citizen community, a lot of them looked at it as like, yeah, we're not really so sure that they have enough money. I think that uh, your idea of the other company folding is probably probably pretty likely because what else are they working on? <clears throat> Not to mention that Richard Garriott is a at this point a serial entrepreneur. So I feel like is it really out of the question for him to just start another company? Um, I, I I don't think it is, but I think that at this point, sort of I think as Limpos was saying, I don't know if people are necessarily going to be jumping up to go play his games anymore. And I think that that's sort of why I ultimately just don't think it's worth your integrity uh, over your transparency. Like I, I'd rather just be transparent with somebody so that way that I can maintain my integrity versus like if I'm not transparent, then if I end up being seen in some negative light or something comes out about me, it's just going to like ruin your integrity. And I think that, you know, in this case, for me personally, I interviewed the guy. You know, he was one of the first people, uh, big developers who just said yes to an interview. So, like, I definitely was very grateful to be able to have an interview with him to talk about Tabula Rasa. But I told you guys after that that video, after I did that interview, I, I didn't even believe him. Like, I, I legitimately told you guys I did not believe what he told me. Like, when, when I told him uh, or when I pressed him on certain things and he gave me answers, because I'm interviewing him, I'm not going to just press him because then he'll never talk to me again, right? He'll never have the entrance of answering my questions. And so, like, I was just like, mm-hmm, 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 ultimately. But, I mean, I told you guys, like, I did not agree with certain things that he said. I think that he swept a lot of stuff under the rug. He didn't talk about a lot of other context. It just sounded like somebody who, you know, kind of was like, well, um, I their mistakes happen, but mostly on the other side. And I just think that that's just a bad way of looking at it because I think that the game that he created was fundamentally flawed. Like, act at its actual core was flawed. Not just because of, you know, 
NCSoft was mean or, or whatever else. Like it, there's more that goes into it. I just don't really believe the story that he told on Tabula Rasa. So for me, Shroud of the Avatar, I already had all of that knowledge of being like, eh, I don't know if I really trust this. And I mean, it, I just so happen to be right, but it's not because I'm here to say I told you so. It's more so it's just because ultimately you can look at these like story developers or whatever who come out and announce big new projects or just people in general who, who talk a big game and they want to show off their game. It doesn't matter how nice you talk though or what other games you've created. All that matters is how does your current product look? That's really all that matters. Think about it. It's like if we if we divorce it from video games and we just make it like um uh let's let's say we make it food, right? Like bread. Bread doesn't really look that appealing when it's just like normal bread, right? But it can taste really good with like super simple ingredients. Like R Richard Garriott was was trying to sell everybody like the exquisite, you know, highfalutin bread. And then every time you took a bite of it, you're just like, this is not what I ordered. Or this is not what I wanted. And, and that after a while for me, especially is just like, uh, it teaches you something. It teaches you that if you're not going to be more aware of sort of stuff like that, then you're going to keep getting suckered, if that makes sense. <laughs> you're going to keep spending your money on products that maybe you shouldn't spend money on. And we've all done it. Like none of us are perfect. It's not a matter of like, oh, you know, only spend your money on the things that I say. It's like ultimately you just have to be a, the informed or educated consumer. And this is one of those scenarios where I feel like if you had an open mind about actually understanding Richard Garriott and where he comes from, you actually would have saw a lot of these signs. And I know not everybody is a detective and wears a fedora, but I'm just a regular person as well. Like I just looked into it. You know, so I think that all of you have that power as well. Anything that you want to support in the future, as I always say, Kickstarter wise, you have to be willing to part with that money because you don't necessarily know uh, if you're going to get exactly what was advertised. If you put your money in a Kickstarter, your money is gone. End of story. If you get something back for it, that's a nice bonus. Okay, three things. One, I absolutely am perfect. Um, but two, yeah, uh, I think if Richard Garriott was to start another company, he would probably be very down low with it. And it's like, try and hide that information as much as possible that, hey, I'm actually the one behind this. I don't, I, I think even he is smart enough to know he screwed up big time here. And uh, there is no good amount of uh, uh, nostalgia or <laughs> good faith in him anymore. So, I mean, he probably will, to some extent, end up uh, either making other games or, I mean, heck, he might just become a regular developer in a company or a consultant or whatever. Um, thirdly, and that was in regards to sort of knowing about that, and I think it was by Nado I uh, talked about with that on Discord, but it is one of those things where you also have to be sometimes a bit careful when... Even when it appears like a developer knows what they're talking about and sound knowledgeable of uh, potential problems and also what kind of what kind of designs and creations lead to certain um, situations and how people react, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Because even when you have all that knowledge. It's not always assured that you can actually combine it all into a proper game. Like you can actually end up, um, 
and this joke I usually make, is that Ubisoft are are actually one of the very best companies at making games. But it's only games that checks off all the boxes, and that's it. They tend to have pretty mediocre story. Their worlds are oftentimes quite uh, uninteresting. (laughs) It's like, it really are just games as you would describe them to another person like this is what a game is but they're not good games like they're they're they are checks of uh, check marks off the list it was like you need this 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 okay done finished ship it done um whereas a good game I mean, even as I say, even as some, if somebody is knowledgeable, they do also need to know how to put it together. I mean, I even know that from my, from myself as a machinist. It's like I know almost all. Uh, all I know almost everything there is to know about machines, but I would never be able to build one. Not a good one. That's almost assured. <laughs> That's where I think uh, also when you've had success earlier in your career, sometimes it's also kind of um, a bit of a trap because if you don't continue to evolve as art evolves and it always does, no matter what, you can't stop it. It always will evolve. I, I find that you kind of get phased out and that's kind of what Shroud of the Avatar reminded me of. And I, you see that a lot in the reviews about the game. People talk about it in the sense of like, it seems like it's like Ultima, but it's like Ultima and like, ways where you're like why is it like this (laughs) not like oh damn it's like ultima and it's it's just funny to think that from a design perspective somebody really sat there and was like hmm we'll make it like ultima because like that's like the old school experience right it's like that's not how you build a game you don't build a game based on being like yeah let's make it like it used to be it's like no you look at what used to be and you're like what did we do right and what did we do wrong and you try and build it from there I, i don't like the idea of these like spiritual successors that just kind of seem like they want to copy the same game. And like, for example, great example, I think is Camelot Unchained. Um, Look at Dark Age of Camelot and Camelot Unchained. They look similar, right? Except there's a key massive difference, right? And it's the ability to build, to create. That's the biggest difference. And that is actually a massive difference. Like it's so huge. It changes the way that the game plays, like on a deep intrinsic level, right? Because now it's a lot more about territory versus just like, go to random lakes that are just randomly there and there's items and areas thrown, you know, like mountains thrown around. It's like, there's no significance to it. But now that you can create your own town, your own bridge or something, right? You can create your own significance. So I think of like that, that was Mark Jacobs being like, what did we do right? What did we do wrong? What did we always want to do? And he talked about always wanting to do a building system. And so I think that that is the way to do it. Don't look at the past and be like, yeah, let's make it like that. It's like, no, Look forward. Well, it's evolving the game, like uh, giving that, giving it more elements that supports the base idea of the original game, right? Because that is one of those things that I would say in a large PvP scale world, the capability uh, instead of having the developer decide where and when you, or not when, but where you're going to attack, instead of just giving that option to the players because players will by themselves find the best places to put down these things so you basically don't really need the developer to it uh, to do it for you plus once you put in that building element you also have a resource system going on that you need to fulfill 
and then you have a logistics of resources that you can attack. So you put in a whole new element that has PvP in it. So it's sort of a natural progression of the game, which I think, I mean, he's probably probably right in. <laughs> we'll have to see if it works out. I mean, we can't be assured that it is, even though it sounds good. <laughs> you still do need to implement it in a reasonable manner. Yeah, even though NDA, NDA, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Can't say that much about it, unfortunately. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, Soon. Yeah, it's. I don't actually know when they're going to lift the NDA. Well, they said that they were shooting for um, a uh, a launch by the next year. So I I thought that they uh, or. I guess that was last year they said that it was going to be 2020. So I don't know when, but that means that closed beta or at least the NDA would be dropping theoretically within the next six months. But I mean, that's just based off of what they said. They can always change the dates. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I wanted to, to say thank you to Daedalus and uh, Scion Corp for resubscribing. Welcome back to the Noir Club. Here's your la tip. Your fedora and a tip behind it. All right. I'm glad you. Hmm. I'm glad you added the fedora to that sentence. <laughs> any any excuse to say fedora? It's hilarious. Like what I found about it is that early on when I created uh, the character of you know Nerd Slayer NS, it was kind of like the idea of like the spy characters, you know, the white versus black um, spies. And I think I, w we talked about that before, actually. You and I did, I remember, because I told you about the art style that it kind of reminded me of what you were doing with Bias Man, which if people haven't seen Limpas's art about Bias Man, who's Ines's alter ego, you have to go uh, check it out sometime. <laughs> I'll let him plug his own shit, though, because he doesn't do it for money. He just does it for fun. Uh, uh, actually, I'm going to say it's like you might say it's detective inspired. I'm fairly sure GameSpy, if it still existed, has a uh, IP lawsuit for you. Wait, man, does GameSpy still exist? Because I, I, it's so funny. Like whenever my uh, uh, artist mapped it out and he drew it, I looked at it and I was like, man, that just that that makes sense. All right. And then I remember one of the first comments I got was like, oh, like. Were you involved in GameSpy? And I was, and I like looked at, I was like, GameSpy. I haven't heard that name since Neverwinter Nights, you know, modules like online. So I was like, huh. And I went and looked up GameSpy, and then saw the logo. And I was like, dude, it, it's it's a green guy, and he's like facing a slightly different way, but it's kind of the exact same idea. <laughs> the two logos are quite similar. <laughs> They're similar, but they different enough. And well, oh, absolutely. They say. Steal like an artist. The only art worth looking at is art you can steal from. <laughs> I mean, I, I steal watermark stuff, so uh, <laughs> I'm not even yeah, sure I'm in the clear there. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not joking. I know somebody who wrote a whole book about it. It's like, you don't have any new creative ideas. You're just stealing ideas and bits of ideas from and you just make it, if you're doing it good, then you make it your own. Yeah. And yeah. 
All right, let's yeah, talk about I'm... Daybreak, guys, because I know um, uh, both of you have a lot of. Oh uh, boy. Probably at least emotions. I'm not going to say maybe thoughts, but at least emotions about this. Um, I'll put it on screen for everybody. This uh, was first the initial story, and I'll show you the one that came after. But it looks like Daybreak has been hit with yet another round of layoffs, reports. You know, Bree Royce talked about the technical director posting about this, saying, sorry to hear about the layoffs at Daybreak today. Huh. Lots of friends were affected. At least one of those uh, laid off was apparently a programmer who confirmed the event saying, I got let go from Daybreak Games today, so I'm looking for a job. I'll always love Planetside. Oh, the feels. The feels. Actually, from what I've read, it's mostly Planetside that's been really hit. Uh, the team of Planetside is, I believe, Planetside 2 is now down to one or two people on it. That's it. Mm. Oh, you might be right. Well, I think least, that's exactly least, what they're doing. Because if I click on this article here, yeah, it can, it confirms it. It says they're uh, realigning the company into separate franchise teams. So they are have registered rather trademarks for a bunch of different name uh, companies: Dark Paul Games, Rogue Planet Games, Golden Age Studios. It looks like what they're going to do is uh, sort of like um, what Standing Stone. Uh, did what the guys that are currently involved with uh, Dark Age of Camelot did, where they uh, Lord of the Rings did as well, where they um, have this, I guess, old, possibly nearly dying IP, and they just kind of maintain it. You know, they service it slowly, but they don't really develop it. It's more like a maintenance mode thing. But I, I don't know. Do you guys know anything more about this? Have you heard about this? I would take a qualify on a unqualified guess that it's uh, for tax reasons that uh, you can probably run almost a zero sum uh, or even a somewhat of a negative uh, income but because it's its uh, own separate company even though it's under a bigger company you might be able to I don't know not have to pay taxes or you can I don't freaking know there's like there's so many laws in that regard but that is my fault I mean, I think in general is Planet Side Two has not been all that successful ever, and it's been declining for a long time. So I think it's not been profitable for quite a while, and they have tried questionable things to change the fortunes around, but it's like clearly not working. That's why yeah, nobody was looking for Planet Side Arena and things like that. So I think it's pretty much them saying, okay, let's just focus on the products that we can still see a future in. And maybe we can just see like maybe Planetside 2's operational expenses are low enough that it's still profitable if you just indeed keep it running in a maintenance mode and just leave it at that. Because it's not a separate company, like it's just internal different teams what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to assume that a lot of the original big developers probably haven't been there for some time, obviously. My problem with Daybreak um, is... Oh, sorry. Oh, I was, I was um, just going to say that my problem with them as a company is that they were an investment fund that acquired um, SOE 
And that when you think about an investment group, they, they're only in it to hopefully get the ROI, right? They don't necessarily yeah. have as much care or sensitivity for the industry itself. And you could tell whenever they came in, like they were making that known right away and people were not very happy. I mean, there's always been a lot of drama considering Daybreak. There's been the whole like, apparently they're like a tied to some like Russian oligarchy or some shit like that. And then like, like something crazy, like that, like some weird story you wouldn't even believe. It, like they had to freeze their funds, Daybreak's funds, yeah. because they had like, you guys remember that? Uh, oh, yes. Yeah. I think, was it whitewashing or something? It was something about, um, like, there was a bunch of Russian money in the company mm-hmm. for some reason. Uh, and uh, because of uh, sanctions. It sanctions. Yeah, it yeah, was sanctions. sanctions. And uh, because there was a bunch of Russian money for some reason, uh, <laughs> the the they were close to shutting down like the games here in the West, but I think they somehow circumvented it. Oh, uh, actually, I'm not entirely sure how they managed that. That I don't think they ever broke the news how the, how they actually managed to wriggle themselves out of that one. I think they uh, apparently the article Bree Royce wrote that they obfuscated the owner, so they kind of basically were like, "Oh yeah, that person's like loosely involved and." But this person's Shell, really the owner. Shell like, company. yeah, they just they shifted blame in some way and somehow got out of it. But yeah, no, I, I actually thought it was curtains back then. Whenever that was happening, I was like, "What the hell? They got their funds like frozen? Like that's crazy." But anyway, from the beginning, they've already had um, a lot of kind of negative uh, stigma around them, and especially because it was an investment group that acquired these properties, that already has you a little bit worried. What Daybreak to me is is a perfect example of a company that just does uh, does not have any sensitivity to the art or to the industry. And that's exactly what happens. It comes across like this. It comes across so tone deaf, like Planetside Arena, when you're just like, what the fuck? Who would want to play the arena version of this game when most of us want bigger versions of the game? Or at least we want like more things in the game. Like, I don't know about a lot of Planetside fans who want like less shit in the game less vehicles, less people, and, you know, make everything small. Like, I, I just, I've never really heard that. And I've been to a lot of Planetside um, conventions as well. Like, they, they used to bring Planetside to every damn convention back then. SOE was pushing the game a lot before, you know, all the other shit happened with Daybreak, and then it got weird. But anyway, I do remember that a big focus for Planetside 2 was always, like, the big, massive battles. And I, I don't know, it just seems so tone-deaf and then for them to release it as a separate game, it's just like, why didn't you just release it as a BR mode? You could have still monetized that. Like, it, it, so many, I don't even know like what to say or to think. Their decisions for their MMOs have been so just horrible. And also H1Z1 too. Look at what they did to that game. They, they kept remaking the game. Like They just weren't really sure what to do with it. I'm sure that there was some talent involved in those games. I'm sure. I'm sure that there were some talented developers. But it doesn't matter when your board is a bunch of suits who don't really understand the business at all. And I, I don't know. That that to me sums up Daybreak. What what do you guys think about Daybreak as a company and how they handled uh, Planetside? Uh, I will say one thing first uh, about um, Planetside Arena. I don't know if you can remember this. But when they initially... Um, 
talked about what uh, that they were making it. They were they did actually say it was either two hundred and fifty versus two hundred and fifty, or it was five hundred versus five hundred. I think it's the first one, um, which I mean that at least had some merit to it. Like that's still pretty big, um, but I mean they ended up only with the BR mode, which. I don't know if they've noticed, but that market is sort of filled up by like two or three games right now, and uh, it, your game is not that great, or your engine and the few developers you have left are not exactly capable to of competing with that, especially when it's. I mean, to say to say it as it's it, it's an asset flip. I think we talked about. I think I mentioned that when you looked uh, looked at it uh, on the podcast where when it came out, and it's like, I mean, there was like two changes to the UI, and everything else was just assets from Planet Side Two. And that was it. Uh, in regards to Daybreak, I mean, I will give them applause for one single thing. They've somehow managed to make SOE look somewhat decent as a company. <laughs> <laughs> There's the silver lining in it all. <laughs> exactly. Um, that's about it. Like everything else has just been a nightmare. As you say, I mean, it's an investment country, uh, country company who um, they just they don't know what they're doing. And it's like, it's also just problematic because they fired or demoted a lot of people who actually had, or frankly drove away a lot of people who actually had knowledge about the industry and about their video games. It's like, nope, out, out. Let's bring in some cheap interns. That'll, that'll make do. It's like, what do you mean our company's sinking like a sinking ship? Yeah, uh, Ludens was talking about H1Z1. I wanted to point out that I did think that that game had something. Like, there was something there. So, like, they did have at least some of their original creative talent. They cooked something together whenever they uh, were acquired by Daybreak. And H1Z1, I think, is just unfortunate. Such an unfortunate story. I can't wait to cover it. Um, you know, which sounds almost like very like murder uh murder happy <laughs> you know you're like yes this thing was killed i want to cover it but it's also just that when i cover these things i get to figure out for myself you know so it's like curiosity killed the cat but in this case um h1z1 has such an interesting story like i, I would love to see what went wrong and how it went wrong and i think that um i, I should point out that as much as i was hating on daybreak i did actually like h1z1 and i think that there was uh, some redeemable qualities in it but i think that they kind of realized obviously it wasn't going to be the survive aspect of it even though they tried that initially so they pivoted off of that and made it kind of more like an arcade arena style game and i think that they kind of led the way for a lot of other games that are like that um that being said uh of course they had tons of problems with balancing i mean the the H1Z1 story is so long, there could be a podcast dedicated to it alone. Like, the, like I've been following it for a while, and people who have can cooperate with this. They've literally changed, like, entire design mechanics within weeks. Like, repeatedly. It, it, I've never seen a game undergo more drastic changes than H1Z1, possibly. It's just like, wow, insane. But um, anyway... And, and I guess closing thoughts on, on Daybreak and the layoffs. It, it sucks that uh, people have to get laid off. But that's what happens when, when uh, like I said, when you get acquired by a company that just doesn't really care about the art. 
because if they don't care about the art, they're not really going to care about you as a person, right? They just see it as a means to an end. And and I don't like to like describe it in a way where it's like Toontown, the cogs in Toontown, where it's like they're all just like their only desire is greed and evil. It's like I don't believe in morality as being black and white anyway. But I say that to tell you guys that when a company is formed to get money and make money based off of investments and, and getting returns on their investments, they're not going to not make money. You know, it, it just it, it's it's like a baking company just deciding not to bake one day. It just doesn't happen. It's just it's the core of what the company is founded on. And it's like why people say once you go corporation, your your only goal is profit. And there's a good argument there, right? That once you are a corporation, your only goal is profit. And so, like, I'm not going to be the one to, of course, uh, die on that hill. But pe people can make that argument. And I think that it's a realistic argument. So. Anyway, Daybreak, do you guys have any closing thoughts about it? I guess I'm just emotionally exhausted about this whole affair. But at this point, it's just like it's hard to care anymore about the company, of course. Though I'm sure there's still some good people left. Uh, I think in regards to making making money, at least, it's like it's also it's like I mean, it is an investment company, and that sort of is it's their job, so to say, and it's like. They don't like. They don't exactly work sort of with the companies. They sort of work parallel. They get some reports once in a while, and they just react to those reports. It's like, okay, we're losing money. Well, kick people off. There you go. <laughs> we're still making money now. It's like excellent. We are doing our job, which for gaming is quite detrimental because that means as soon as you have a single bad game or you have um, a single bad season or single bad DLC is like, well, uh, heads on the chopping block. Whereas somebody who is more just an artist, so to say, in video games, like, okay, we didn't do so well this time. It's like, well, let's up our game. Everyone gets to keep their job because we still need every one of you. We, <laughs> That's how we've made our business. We'll have to make do. It's like, and yeah, that probably sort of is the big difference. Um, and it also just, I mean, it's its a weird thought, but I still want to say it just because, like, the man was fantastic. I remember somebody like Total Biscuit, whenever he would make very serious videos, talking about serious topics, oftentimes not always gaming-related. As he said, he never monetized them, and he never made any clickbait or anything. It was just, I'll talk about this topic for this long. And that sort of... I think that to some extent is also that's sort of his journalistic um, professionalism sort of showing. He didn't want to make money off contro con controversy, nor did he actually care about how many watched it with clickbait article or clickbait uh, thumbnail and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to bring it back to daybreak for me. It's it's a difficult corporate story and yeah, cutting staff is the easiest way to reduce costs and quite often also the most expensive one because staff is what makes you money in the end, provided you use the staff appropriately to the talent. And while well, the investment companies, they don't really tend, tend not to think that much long-term, a lot of them, depending of course, some of them are more long-term thinking. But if you're on the short term, then yeah, games are not going well, just fire the people. And if we want more games, we'll just find another game studio to buy and we'll kind of run them into the ground again. 
And also, I think, let's face it, when they bought SOE and you buy a game like PlanetSide, you're not exactly buying a stellar game to begin with. You buy a product that has quite a lot of issues. And if you buy a product that has quite a lot of issues, you can either choose to extract as much value from it as it stands uh, for as long as you can, or you can try to go long-term, see if you can actually fix the issues with the product and make it a more successful product. That one, of course, is more riskful and requires a lot of uh, vision and commitment uh, to see that through. And I don't think that the Daybreak is a company that would ever have any interest in doing such a thing like that. So as always, it's sad for people that lose their jobs, but in the end, I would also say, do you want to work for a company like that? That's that's an honest question you have to ask yourself as well. It's like, yeah, they give me my paycheck, but do I really want to work for a company like this? If I love my art, if I love making games, do I want to work for a company that doesn't give a fuck about my art? Quite honestly, I would say no. Yeah, I mean, good closing thoughts, by the way, guys. Obviously, cover a lot of Daybreak stuff, and I know that, you know, us in particular have talked a lot about Daybreak just because of Planet Side and the way that they handled things. It's um, it's a story that that you know, seemingly from the looks of it, it's going to be ending very soon. So, um, that that's sad to think that they're probably going to tank Daybreak and then just create all of these other little shell companies. Which, at that point, you can't even be critical of those companies because they're just basically designed to keep a certain game running. And I'm okay with that, uh, obviously. What I'm not okay with is them uh, monetizing it to the point to where it's not fair for the consumer and then them not allow for private server usage, right? That's usually where I take the most issue whenever games are running in maintenance mode is that you might be running in maintenance mode as an MMO, but you're still charging like you're not in maintenance mode. And that to me is just like, that's pretty fucked up. All right. So, can, can, yeah. can I say one thing quickly? Mm-hmm. Um, as, much, as, like, as much shade as we can throw at Daybreak, deservedly so, um, It, I mean, SOE was sort of heading in that, well, not the exact same direction, but like they were sort of slowly plummeting towards their death. And break day, Daybreak took over and is now also slowly falling towards that end. So I think to some extent... Uh, daybreak or not it, we probably would have been in a pretty severe situation in regards to those ips nonetheless oh yeah make no mistake sony itself is a corporate uh, pretty much a financial company like that's most of their money comes from the financial sector most people don't realize that so yeah they were they would have done the same thing i think that um at least there could have been the chance that some of those IPs could have been private servers because the strange thing is is that you know when SOE was acquired, I'm assuming they acquired whatever currently existing games were uh, live at that time, but I don't know if that means that they have like old IPs, especially when it comes to Star Wars IP because you have to pay a licensing fee yearly on it or whatever it is. I think it might be every three years. Uh, it might depend actually on how long your contract is because... Uh, EA had Star Wars for like 10 years or some shit, so I don't know exactly what they're paying, but it's probably a lot of money. But Galaxies was able to have a very successful, uh, cool running um, private server, multiple private servers, 
uh, EverQuest uh, Project 1999 exists as well. So I guess I'm just hoping that if Daybreak does go under, maintenance mode happens in these other games. I hope that that still opens up the possibility for community-run servers because, uh, no offense, but I'd rather trust the community to run a server than some shell company that has like a couple of like, you know, interns and maybe one or two developers working at it because it's just like you guys still have to get paid. You still have to turn a profit somehow, some way. Whereas if you open it up to the community, to the volunteers of the community, they don't need to worry about getting paid because they're not worried about right. that. They just love the game. Uh, that does some time. Go ahead, Todd. Yeah. What I would just like with those things is I would be, if you go as a company, you're like, okay, this game is not going to work for me any longer. It's a maintenance mode. I'm probably not going to make money from it like come a year down the line. Why don't you just license, yeah. you know, a right to for people to run private servers and say like, okay, you need to make money to run a private server. You pay us an X percentage of whatever you're making. That's your license fee to run to be allowed to run the game. That just means that you have no hassle. The only thing you're gonna get every month is a check in the in the mailbox for nothing. The only thing that you own is the IP, and it's like, oh, I'm getting a check every month. I can't make money off it anymore because the investment for me is too much. I've got kind of overhead, but a bunch of volunteers that just make enough money that they can keep a server running. Yeah, fine by me. And if they make it, if they become suddenly very big and they get three million subscribers, I'm still gonna get twenty five percent. All right. Are you guys ready for the next topic? What is it? I say it labored like that because it's going to be the blizzard topic. Oh, no. I'm losing signal. <laughs> All right. So everybody knows at this point. It's not directly related to MMOs, but I mean, come on. <laughs> I don't need to tell you guys the connection. So I thought that Brie Royce did a pretty good article on this. And I think that she basically already did the work for me. So I don't have to go and piece everything together. Um, but I, initially, if you guys aren't familiar with the story, a Hong Kong, uh, or sorry, a Chinese uh, player by the name of Blitz Chung was playing a game and uh, was playing Hearthstone. He's a GM player in Hearthstone. And so he was playing a game, playing a match on stream, and whenever it was his turn to get interviewed, the casters kind of were like, you know, passing it to him. He said, uh, and let me make sure I say exactly what was quoted here, because obviously there's translation things. They didn't put what he said here. I feel like that's pretty important. Huh, yeah. That's isn't that weird that they didn't put what he said here. But anyway, it, it's it's loosely translated to feel free to go look it up yourself, guys. But it's loosely translated to he said uh, free Hong Kong, you know, like. If you guys aren't familiar with the protests that are happening over there because of I mean, at this point, I feel like if I have to explain it to you guys, um, <laughs> I don't know what to say about your like viewpoint of the world. But at this point, I you've probably heard it from somebody else somebody who spends a lot more time talking about politics than I do. So I'm not going to take the time to explain to you what's happening over there at the moment. But obviously there's been a lot of problems with uh, in China about um, 
I guess what I would say, uh, civil liberties, if you want to call it that, right? People feel like their um, personal boundaries are being overstepped. They're being um, taken photos of, recorded. There's voice, or sorry, there's a facial recognition technology over there. Shit's pretty fucking wild. But where this and, and Blizzard kind of intersect is uh, when this player said this, Blizzard immediately came out with a hammer. And I mean, like, not just, not a hammer. They came out with a shotgun, dude. Like a buckshot shotgun, and they shot everybody in the vicinity who was involved. So, like, it was the cast, the two casters, and the player himself, Blitzchung. They just basically pulled out that sawn off, whatever, and they just shot everything in, in the vicinity because they fired both the casters. And all the casters did was basically, like, hey, pass it to you. And then they were just there, like, uh oh, you shouldn't talk about that. And they were actually trying to help the kid, you know? Like, it's not like they were trying to say anything bad themselves. They were just like, oh, oh, maybe you shouldn't say that. Like, you know, because you're going to get in trouble. They fired the two casters and they banned the guy, uh, the GM player, from playing Hearthstone and eSport events, I think for like two years or something like that. And then they also were going to fine him and do a whole bunch of other crap to him. <laughs> it, I don't even know where to necessarily like start, but I guess I'll just continue to try and piece uh, through the story. So after that happened, Blizzard also took his winnings after he won, like that, they cited apparently like a vague tournament rule, according to the article, that essentially allowed the studio to bar anybody from competition for any reason. Surprise, guys! You sign those kind of contracts when you play esports for big giant corporations, uh, corporations who create esports, not like grow esports, but create esports. It's different, right? You're signing a contract. You're you're a player for the blah 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 team, right? It's a little bit different when you work with Blizzard with esports, right? The move sparked new protests, resignations from other pro teams, casters, uh, politicians are covering it, I'm covering it, everybody's covering it. At this point, um, everybody was basically saying, that's not okay. It's not okay for Blizzard to have done that, to let alone the casters and the player involved, when he's basically just kind of doing his own um, best job to spread the message that shit's going down over there and he wants you know his people the Chinese people, to, to band together. And while this is a very sensitive subject, and that's my most PC way of putting it, um, I think that it should be pointed out that obviously, you know, this is a topic of freedom of speech. And freedom of speech is something that you guys know that I've talked about a little bit before. It's actually a topic I hate talking about, to be completely honest. I think I've actually talked to Limpos and Card about it before too, but I, I hate the topic of freedom of speech because freedom of speech, people think, means that you're unable to then be criticized back. Like, for example, I was playing an Overwatch game the other day uh, with my cousin, and uh, this one guy's like, uh, blah, blah, blah. He says something about me in the game, and I was like, okay, all right. So I remembered it, and then after the game was over, I, I went to his profile, talked about his win percentages, talked about how he hasn't been playing well lately, like, and then he got, like, really offended by it, and I was like, what? I was just doing what you did to me, which is, like, I went to, you know, your profile, and I was being critical of you, and he's like, no, you just can't take criticism. It's like, well... I can take criticism and then I can give you criticism as well. It's like it's it's two way street, right? So that's my opinion on freedom of speech is that ultimately in a private establishment, they have the right to say you can say exactly what you want, but you can also face the consequences. This is different, right? Because this is a scenario obviously across the pond, <laughs> way across the pond, 20 hours or so across the pond uh, by plane. And obviously China has had a problem with freedom of speech and being able to have individuality there, period, right? 
But now Blizzard is getting involved into this. And think about that. Blizzard, of course, now is a global corporation, but uh, initially was an American corporation. So for many people, they see Blizzard as like, oh, you'd be pro freedom of speech. You know, you, you would support such a thing. Right. 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 <laughs> I sorry. I say that jokingly because um, we learned that that wasn't the case. Right. Apparently, it's becoming quite obvious that Blizzard is willing to do whatever it takes to keep uh, the, that, those Chinese dollars coming in, right? Because they know that China is their biggest audience, makes the most money for them uh, as a region, and apparently they're willing to do whatever they can to kind of protect that. So this is a lot to cover. I have to get through this uh, whole buildup, though, uh, Limp Boston card, so just bear with me, but feel free to read through the article as well. So the president of Blizzard Entertainment, Jay Allen Brack, came out and posted. <laughs> uh, all right. Let's just read the official post. I'll let you guys form your own opinions of it. Regarding last weekend's Hearthstone Grandmasters tournament. Hello, Blizzard community. I want to take a few minutes to thank or to talk all of to talk to all of you. OK, there you go. About the Hearthstone Grandmasters tournament this past weekend. On Monday, we made the decision to take action against a player named Blitz Chung and two shoutcasters after the player shared his views on what's happening in Hong Kong on our official broadcast channel. <laughs> I like how he throws in the official broadcast channel. At Blizzard, our vision is to... By the way, if you guys don't know about me, I always make fun of corporate speak. I, I'm just sorry. I don't care. But if you speak in a corporate way, it looks as if it's doctored corporately, which means you had a team sitting behind the screen making this i'm going to make fun of it because it's not how humans talk <laughs> it's how a corporation talks anyway at blizzard our vision is to bring the world together through epic entertainment a clear example by the way and we have our core values that apply here think globally lead responsibly and more importantly every voice matters <laughs> encouraging everybody to share their point of view the actions that we took over the weekend are causing people to question if we are still committed to these values we absolutely are and i will explain our esport program are an expression of our vision and our values. What? What the fuck does that even mean? Our esports program are an expression of our vision and our values. Like, dude, you guys started Overwatch as an esport. Like, overnight, you put hundreds of millions of dollars into it. I just, all right. Esports exist to create opportunities for players from around the world, from different cultures. Okay, that's true. There's different people, different cultures all around the world. Esports is, you know, definitely that. Esports is mingling of culture and from different backgrounds to come together to compete and share the passion for gaming. It's extremely important to us to protect these channels and the purpose they serve, to bring the world together through epic entertainment, another epic entertainment, I like that, Cele uh, celebrate our players and build diverse and inclusive communities. All right, so first, our official esports tournament broadcast was used as a platform for the winner of this event to share his views with the world. They talked about interviewing players, how their excitement is a powerful way to bring us together. Okay. Um, Blitz Chung used this segment to make a statement about the situation in Hong Kong in violation of rules he acknowledged and understood. This is why we took action. Okay, so this is a, a classic example of sometimes when you sign a contract, you don't necessarily read it all. And so the next thing you know, they can pull something out like this where they can basically say like, oh, because we disagree with you, we'll actually use a rule against you as well. Every voice matters, and we strongly encourage everyone in our community to share their viewpoints. However, the official broadcast needs to be about the tournament and to be a place where all are welcome. What? 
all are welcome. Okay. Um, in support of that, we want to keep the official channels focused on the game. Yeah. Second, what is the role of shoutcasters? We hire shoutcasters to amplify the excitement of the game. Okay. Um, I'm not sure, like that seemed randomly thrown in there. Third, our actions are based on the content of the message. Were our actions? So he's asking the questions. Were our actions based on the content of the message? Part of thinking globally. Wait a minute. These are trademark phrases? Is that why he keeps capitalizing them? Are these like actually copyrighted or trademark phrases? Is that why they keep capitalizing this? Does anyone know? Because I don't think you talk like that normally. So you'd only say that if it was a slogan, if it's something that you've actually like trademarked or you own. Huh. Because I keep seeing those. Oh, it's their core values. So they're just trying to remind me. Gotcha. <laughs> Part of thinking globally, leading responsibly, and every voice matters. There, I'll say it in those voices since they put them in capitalization. Is recognizing that our player or that we have players and fans in almost every country in the world. Our goal is to help players connect in areas of commonality. Okay, share a passion in games. All right. The specific views expressed by Blitzchung were not a factor in the decision we made. I want to be clear. Our relationships in China had no influence on our decision. I want you guys to remember that part. We have these rules to keep the focus on the game and on the tournament to benefit of a global audience. In benefit of a global audience. And that was the only consideration in the actions we took. If this had been the opposing viewpoint delivered in the same divisive and deliberate way... We would have felt and acted the same. What do you mean opposing viewpoint? <laughs> Wait a minute. What do they mean opposing viewpoint? Like it's just a difference of opinion. That's a really weird way to, to like talk about the problems in Hong Kong. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say I deeply know the inner workings of the turmoil over there. But I know enough to know it's not really an argument of opposing viewpoint, right? Not... Yeah, it's like, exactly, uh, Trustian. It would be like if you're saying you're pro-China in that case. It's, it's like, what? Like, I, I, don't, I don't know. That seems, it seems weird to say it that way, but then it's almost like they're acknowledging that the other side exists, so then period, they should just also adhere to them. But then they also just said that they're not trying to, or they weren't influenced by their relationships in China, but they're acknowledging that there is another perspective, but the, the other perspective is China's perspective. So, uh, what? It, to me, that doesn't seem like it even follows. Like, if you're saying that, well, in this case, right, China is, um, it's, it's, a, it's a very controversial issue, but there's two sides to the problem, right? That's what they're saying, essentially. Okay, so what's the other side? The government? So what do you mean your the China's government or your influences in China or relationships in China or business relationships and government relationships since they're intertwined there have no influence on your decision? I don't know. That's what do you guys think about that? Hard limp boss, you guys there? Yeah. What do you guys think about yeah. that statement? I mean, to me there are couple of things around this whole scenario and including the statement. However, I'm going to focus on something that I mentioned in the, on Discord as well. 
And that's a generally unwritten and at times, depending on the contract also, written rules is that we don't uh, bring politics into our sport. And you can see this if you watch quite a few of internationally uh, broadcasted sports, like for example, I watch a lot of Formula One. Anything on the official channels dealing with Formula One, it is all focused on Formula One, on the racing and not on any on the politics around it. Uh, whether it's their own beliefs or beliefs of defense, things like that, they're just kept away from that. So when you're looking at that from that aspect, I think them saying like, yeah, we don't want this, regardless of the actual content, as they mentioned in this uh, PR uh, release here, that is what we're going to call it because that's what it is. They're saying like, yeah, we don't want any of this regardless of the content. And I don't follow enough of Blizzard Esports to be aware of this is actually the case. Like, are there examples where they have actually allowed this of different sorts of content? If that's the case, then they're going to be very hypocritical. If they are, on the other hand, saying like, yeah, this is a clear first example and yeah, we don't want to have anything to do with it. I would say, yeah, they're absolutely in the right to say, you're in breach of contract. We don't want any of this because you are trying to create an audience that is focused on your product, which in this case happens to be the eSport of Hearthstone. I mean, how you can even call it an eSport is a whole secondary discussion, but hey. So purely from that perspective, I'm saying like if Blizzard says like, yeah, you know, you breach the rules, there are, maybe there are agreed penalties to it, maybe there are just saying like, yeah, you will penalize, but it's not factored in then fine, so be it. Uh, you have to suffer those consequences because you choose to use a platform that was not uh, designed to be used in such a way. If they would, for example, have punished him because on his private Twitter account or on some fan stream later on, he made these similar comments, that would be a whole different topic because at that point you're talking like, yeah, this one, like people do on their private Twitters and stuff like that and the private streams, it should be just them. And, you should leave yourself completely out of it because they're at that point not representing you anymore. They're representing themselves. So the problem, of course, lies that it is a very sensitive subject. We're dealing with the whole situation down there in Hong Kong, and I have talked to some people that are actually there. So it's not a great situation, and I understand why people are very upset about it. But my problem here is that like, I'll be very upset about it because of the situation in Hong Kong. Or are we upset that Blizzard is just telling you we don't want any politics in our stuff? Because if Blizzard is allowing politics before, then yes, be angry at Blizzard. If they did not allow it before and they are still doing the same, we're not allowing it now, then don't be angry at Blizzard. They're just following, they're saying like, we don't want any of this. And to me, that makes complete sense because we're here to focus on what our product is, on our players, on our game, and that's it. And that's also, in my opinion, how it should be. Because the moment you open something like this up, to be a platform for people to use for their politics, it's going to go to hell. And everybody knows that because it's going to be out of control and it's just not going to be fun and it's not going to be inclusive anymore. My turn? Mm -hmm. Be my guest. Okay. Um, I'm actually going to go somewhat in the same line as Card in that sort of just in personal belief, at least. I 
rarely care about corporations sort of adhering to freedom of speech, not that they have to. And in Blizzard's case, yeah, it's it's a big market that they stand to offend. And it's also a big market that is very strongly gripped by its government, which means, well, <laughs> they do stand to, I mean, they could basically, if worst case scenario, they could just lose the, um, what's called um, the rights to even have games within that country. From a logical perspective, in their from them, yeah, you don't, you kind of don't want to <laughs> piss them off if that's the case. Um, but yeah, and it's <laughs> the situation is also extremely sensitive and it's like crazy. It's like almost revolution level of um, sensitive at which point I mean frankly taking any side in it is uh, not the best idea whatsoever and it's like I can't exactly fault the company for it and I also feel somewhat that I can't really say much about Blizzard because I mean in this house, I own plenty of things in China, uh, made in China. I'm going to buy a bunch of other different things that are made in China. I myself am supporting this very big nation that is hammering down on a way smaller nation in my own ways, which would make me somewhat of a hypocrite to point fingers at Blizzard. It's like, no, you you have to do exactly what I want you to do, even though you stand to lose everything. Meanwhile... I get all my Chinese plastic things and I don't have to take any consequences of uh, my beliefs. Well, that's where I think boycotting, for example, Blizzard games is it, it does kind of seem first world problems because it's like, well, why don't you boycott like a lot of Chinese products? But the, the problem with the whole idea of boycotting that um, I, I don't think a lot of people realize is that boycotting is a matter of convenience ultimately it's like if you can boycott something conveniently you will but if you can't then you're not going to and because many things for example are made in china if your stance is like well if you're going to be against certain chinese decisions or decision making regarding this you know uh chinese situation with blizzard and their relationship with china or whatever else right um then i think it you don't necessarily have to worry about cutting every other chinese product out of your uh out of your use because it's honestly not really feasible most of what people uh use in some way in their life is made in china something is made in china it's just cheaper to make it there right well i mean we For wouldn't now. be having this discussion because i mean we're all sitting on some kind of pc and there has to be at least one part that has been made in china <laughs> oftentimes several uh even if it's an under uh um, uh, just a single thing within a component it's probably made in china so yeah <laughs> uh, boycotting china is going to be way more complicated there than one might initially think i do think that blizzard is going to get a lot of crap for this they already have obviously but i mean like crap in the sense that they're losing wow subscriptions because people are actually saying like we disagree so much with how this was handled that we don't want to support your games anymore one thing I wanted to talk about that both of you guys kind of highlighted is that I'm kind of of the uh, personal opinion where ultimately if you could keep the majority of politics as in supported by the company itself, 
out of whatever I'm, um, you know, consuming, ultimately it, it, it is kind of better. I think for my enjoyment, just because I do follow politics every now and then. And sometimes I do kind of like to keep them as separate as possible. But I honestly think that idea of keeping politics separate, though, is, is frankly speaking, is kind of like a silly perspective, though, because ultimately politics is culture. Culture is politics. They literally said in the article, uh, in their statement, that they love culture from global places. Guys, Blizzard here. You've designed esports around cultural backgrounds. Why are you afraid or why are you confused that there would be nationalism or there would be politics interjected into such competitions when you've made them based on this region versus this region? I mean, it seems I like I don't know. It seems kind of strange to me that that they would be like that. It's not it's, strange. There's there are different levels. There are different forms of your politics. Like a lot of sports, like. People support, of course, their national team, for example, or I support a driver from my country. That's different uh, from going all political on whatever situations that are going on. And I think that's the, there's a difference in national culture and also in the culture around sports. I mean, for example, if you look at the Dutch fans are pretty much globally known to be a rather unique orange bunch. They tend to be mostly reasonably fun, but also completely insane. And everybody always thinks like, oh, they're so united in all of those things. Like those same fans that are supporting our national football team here at home will whack at each other with sticks and knives because they're, they're supporters of two different local football teams. There are so many different levels and things in there. And at that point, like, if you say, like, yeah, I have a sport that focuses on national teams, that's fine. People are going to be going for that. But even there, if you know, you see in, uh, in arenas and people go political, it's like a lot of people don't really like it because in the end, what we're there for is for the sport. If you want to talk deep politics, we want to go elsewhere for that. Right there, we know I'm there for the sport. I'm going to watch the sport. I want to know. Why did this guy win the tournament? Like, what's how did that allow you to stop draw off his deck, uh, change the whole match? Those are the things I'm there for if I'm watching an Hearthstone tournament. I'm, I'm not watching one, but I imagine that's what people would be doing. The same reason, like, when I watch the driver's press conference in a Formula One race, I'm there to be informed about those things. If I want to know their political opinions and stuff like that, I'll go to their personal Twitters. And I do that sometimes, and some of them have almost nothing on there because they just don't care. They don't want to share anything, and some share a whole lot. And sometimes you can agree, sometimes you can disagree, but there are different venues for such matters. And it's always going to be a tricky one. But I think because politics in general are, can be so extraordinarily loaded and heated and completely distract and take away from everything else, is the reason why most companies are like, yeah, we don't want anything to do with it, period, regardless of origin or meaning. Yeah, I think that the the point that should be made, though, is that um, it's all about consistency. It's It's been said a lot in chat, but it's true. It, it's about consistency. That's the problem that people oh, have yeah. mostly with Blizzard is that they'll bring politics in when it suits them. But if politics are in that's negative, then they're like, no, 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 no. We don't want that to be in. But that's not really consistent because 
you can't then be supportive of politics when it benefits you and then whenever it doesn't benefit you be like no 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 no, like you can't talk about that stuff because you're giving people the wrong idea that oh maybe this is a place i can share my ideas my my uh my personal beliefs i think uh someone said in chat and i agree that as long as it's if you just have a hard stance of hey any officially sanctioned events don't talk about politics everybody that's just a rule i i'm totally fine with that that way we can just focus on watching the event have a good time and whatever else but ultimately speaking um unless that they're going to have a hard stance like that if you're going to allow some of it in other stuff's going to come in as well and i think that that's like the big problem I see when it comes to the the polit uh, political discussions. The other thing is, is that if you don't quantify what actually constitutes a political discussion or bringing politics into whatever else, then you don't actually know what it means. And like a good example is, is I just qualified it as an official sanctioned event and talking about politics. That's my qualifier, but it could be different for other people. Um, the reason why it's relevant to explain is, is that for example, and I've heard this a lot um, with one of my favorite bands, people have complained about, uh, one of the newest Gorillaz albums, uh, the album was Humans because they said, oh, it's so political. It's so political. And I'm sitting there like, oh, you guys didn't actually know what the other albums were about then because it's literally been political the entire time. And so that's kind of the problem is, is that you create this big like mob mentality of like, keep politics out, keep politics out to where people are actually like literally irrational about it. Like in that case, Gorillaz as a band already was political. The band literally itself is created to be political <laughs> so like that's just like one example but you see it a lot in video games too they're like keep politics out of video games it's like but politics are video games like they're gonna be part of video games because if you have a world does your world have an operating body a government probably some sort of government you have politics congratulations it's just different when you're going in there with like a specific agenda and you're not being upfront with people like so i get that it is sensitive, but I find that if you don't quantify what it means for yourself, like, like rather even just qualify it, like tell, tell somebody, well, this is what I see as bringing politics into blah, blah, blah. Because I've often, very often, I should say, heard other people say, man, this is so political. And I'm, I'm looking at it and I'm like, what? I didn't see that at, literally at all. I didn't even think politics when I saw this. And yet I can have somebody else tell me, no, this is political, dude, trust me. And I'm like, Oh, that, that's the thing is, is that we have different opinions of what's considered political. And I think that that's why, like, if you're going to be a company and, and Blizzard in this case, if they would just be consistent and say, like, we're going to be consistent from now on, even if they are in bed with China, people wouldn't give them as much crap. I think it's the fact that they came out with this um, press release that's supposedly from Jay uh, Allen Breck. And then apparently not. There's rumors and also a lot of uh, um, detective work being done where people are comparing previous posts that he's made himself and the way that he speaks to the to the post that uh, the announcement that was made regarding the uh, Hearthstone tournament. Uh, there's also apparently a Chinese uh, uh, English speaker, a student, uh, I believe he studies the language. He at the moment, a translator, went through and kind of saw that he noticed a lot of very commonly used Chinese to English phrases. And so even the way that they like organize the paragraph um, as it's said on this Twitter thread, and let me post this just for people. Um, one second. There it goes. Apparently, there's some, it looks pretty credible, right? Like you can read through what the person's saying, and it sounds like they know what they're talking about. So, all I'm saying is like people now 
it, there's another layer added to all of this, this already complicated discussion, because now there's ideas that perhaps they're actually just lying about their involvement with China <laughs> and that it doesn't involve uh, their involvement in China. Uh, whereas people are saying, well, you guys are releasing uh, press releases, separate press releases to the Chinese audience and to the American audience. And, oh, we didn't even get into the one that was released to China yet. Let's just talk about the one that was released to America. Apparently, people are suggesting that it came from China still, like it was written by somebody who's a translator. And so is it as influenced? Is it just a thing where they didn't want to have to rewrite it? I don't know. It seemed pretty insensitive that they wouldn't just rewrite the post, right? And just translate it then. But now let's go find the, uh, the other one. It's actually, it's right here. All right. Um, where is it? It was in this uh, article that I was looking at. You guys can talk to me, by the way. Uh, give me some time. <laughs> One thing that I actually wanted to mention, just because, um, well, I mean, not that it's the same kind of situation here in Europe, but we had the whole Spanish and uh, Catalonia uh, thing going on for a bit over a year now, almost two years. I can't actually remember when it started out. And I actually sort of thought about it. It's like that hasn't actually really been mentioned anywhere in any sports or really anywhere else as far as I'm cons as far as I know at least other than in the news essentially which does actually make it somewhat interesting because I mean they are technically seditionists like trying to separate themselves from the Spanish government and gaining independence and that's strangely enough something that hasn't as I say to my knowledge really come up anywhere else which it's... It makes it somewhat interesting to sort of think about it. it's like well some revolutions <laughs> apparently garner some attention and can get somebody banned from talking about it. and then there's others where people apparently aren't really talking about it and haven't really made any controversial statements about it i think that's fairly simply down to history that issue has been there for a very very long time and it's always sort of been there so people, you know, at some point forgetting and this whole Hong Kong situation as it stands right now is really, really fresh. And it also happens in a far more uh, key uh, area in the world, like Hong Kong is still a very big financial center. Yeah. So people are bound to pay more attention to it as well. Are you saying, but, Spain, are you saying Spain ain't interesting or important? Because uh, I'm okay with that. <laughs> I mean, it's just come down to the fact that, like I said, that situation there has been there for a very, very long time. And yeah, once in a while it flares up a little bit and people are like, oh, here it goes again. Whatever, it will just die down like all of the other times. I think it might also sort of be a reflection on uh, the sort of general um, uh, interpretation that we have of the nation. When I think Spain, I don't exactly think about this. Uh, Catalonians who just they've always wanted freedom and Spain has just always beaten them, them down with the clubs um, whereas so, yeah. China, China has a bit yeah. worse uh, 
bit worse of a uh, reputation on the uh, world stage for their uh, treatment of uh, citizens. Seems that uh, Nerd Slayer found our uh, Chinese uh, version. Yeah. Gotcha. And there, just so you guys know, there's a bunch of different translation versions. Uh, Chinese is a pretty complicated language. In fact, some would argue it's one of the hardest, but um, there's been multiple uh, stories or translations published. One of them was published by um, Mark Kern, which, I mean, I couldn't give any less fucks, but um, let's talk about the one that IGN was uh, able to independently translate from their official, uh, the Blizzard official Hearthstone uh, Weibo account. So it says, we express our strong indignation ooh, or resentment in uh, parentheses and condemnation of the events that occurred in the Hearthstone Asia Pacific competition last weekend and absolutely oppose the dissemination of personal politics or political ideas rather during any events or games. Sorry, it's, it's translated. So sometimes the English doesn't follow as well. The players involved will be banned. Well, there's only one player, but all right. Players involved will be banned, and the commentators involved will be immediately terminated from any official business. Also, we will protect, uh, parentheses, or safeguard our national dignity, parentheses, or honor. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. That's from Blizzard? Yes, that's from their official, like, Chinese uh, statement. Okay, okay, okay. Ch uh, Chinese official statement. Okay, then it, then, then that makes a bit more sense. I was thinking it's like, oh, this American company is our national dignity. It's like, uh, <laughs> I think that's how that works. But it, I mean, it's actually interesting to uh, read because that's most certainly a very different uh, uh, message to send. Strong indignation or resentment and condemnation of the events. That's. Uh, most certainly uh, a different language uh, being said or being talked here. I mean, it sounds fairly typical. Yeah. And that's like, again, I think this is also called like, yeah, you got China doing what China does, different, different there in the culture as well, of course. It's just like overall, and that's, I think if, like this discussion that's a good reminder why we have our rule three of the discord it's, it's so <laughs> incredibly complicated it's such a it's an issue that has an enormous amount of layers that you just peel back peel back peel back and every time you're just like yeah i don't really know and that's why you know as Murd mentioned earlier and it's like be consistent just say no to any mentions of it like if you're on the official stuff you talk about the game and yes you may talk about like yes we beat china we're really happy about that that's fine like if you had a team of uh hong kong players or uh taiwanese players uh, or as it is officially you known that would piss off china i will say but the republic of china facing off against the people's republic of china and they beat it and they're very happy about it that's fine that's part of your game like yeah we beat them we're great, we're better at this game than them. That's part of the sport, that's fine. But as soon as you go anywhere else, then yeah. You just should be saying like, only official stuff, don't do it. Because it's a can of worms that has no bottom. And pretty much once you open it, it's not really possible to close it. And yes, I'm from the Netherlands. 
Yeah, I actually I forgot to say that in regards to politics. I mean, I think to some extent people also do have to remember that there are soft politics and there is hard politics, and it's like something like a country sort of trying to maintain its independence uh, from a much larger neighboring country is somewhat different than saying uh, girls should play video games. I don't know, something like that, right? It's like there's somewhat of a difference of the level of um, uh, offense that can be taken from that, uh, at least to some degree. <laughs> I, I think so. I think that that goes back to what I was saying about like, you have to at least know, like, is there a difference in severity of like certain statements? Because there should be a, some sort of scale where it's like, what, you know, what is considered just outright political past the point that we don't want it involved. And then, you know, when are we going to, if we are going to handle politics, we need to make sure to handle it in a very sensitive way. So I, I just think that it's, again, it goes back to if they're consistent about it, I don't think it becomes that big of a problem, but I don't want to, you know, um, talk too much about it, this podcast, because we've already talked a, a bit, um, been here for two hours. Um, but I do want to talk eventually about my perspective on politics and video games and stuff, because frankly speaking, I, and I've said it before, um, I just think that uh, whether you like it or not, politics are going to be in video games. They always will. So I just think that it's better for you to adopt a position of how much is too much instead of being like, I don't want it at all because it's going to, it always does find its way into um, a video game or a book or a story. You know, politics is just part of human life because we have to deal with it. It's something, it's part of the human condition, right? So. Anyway, I think uh, I have nothing else really to say about it other than just I can understand what people would definitely boycott uh, Blizzard. But at the same time, I think that it's it's probably a lot more intelligent to just um, realize that if you are boycotting them, was that because before you thought that they had your best interests at mind? Or is it just because you disagree with them now? Because like, I, I think if, you know, if the first one has you thinking a little bit, maybe it's time to reevaluate how you... Uh, uh, find interest in companies or which companies you support because i mean i don't think they've had people's best interest in mind for a minute i just think that classic wows was a little bit blinding for people they're like oh blizzard is so good but it's like but they didn't necessarily handle that the best either um it's just that because people were playing classic wow and there's another mmo to play they're kind of not going to complain as much about it but um yeah i don't know i guess we'll see what happens more with the story but uh I certainly will say it's good timing for Arcage to hear a lot of this drama because <laughs> they're like, hey, we're launching pretty soon. If we do a good job, maybe we can gobble up some of these players um, who are angry at Blizzard um, and justifiably so. And then we learned it didn't have any extra servers in standby after all. I'm just imagining the game you go off is like, yes, Blizzard <laughs> <laughs> screwed it. We're going to take over the MMO market now. Arcade on shade, here we go. Yeah, exactly, Heel. That's a good point. They had to be dragged by the ears to launch classics, so they shouldn't be given like a pat on the back for it. I, I kind of agree with that. It's like I mean, come on guys. We basically had to convince you there was a desire there, which we shouldn't have to do if you guys just were paying attention. If I can just shortly say something about that. Take that as a yes. Um I, I do understand the hesitation or, or to not 
have a sort of parallel MMO going at the same time to sort of not get your player base like split up and then it's like they're what eight expansions in now and people probably have their favorites so you end up with like half a million per certain well, that's still quite good actually thinking about it i retract my point next topic uh fair enough um <laughs> let's go into the mmo roundtable and that's what i'll end with you guys and then i'll um say goodbye to y'all and i'll Stay on just a little bit longer to answer questions or talk about whatever chat wants to talk about. Um, so for the weekly MMO roundtable question, uh, it was, uh, what are your thoughts on the state of the current day MMO journalism? And I want to open it up to you guys since I've talked a lot, so you can give me a break. Oh, I love it. It's the best. It is, it's peak journalism. No, it's not. Uh, it's I think you bad. need to add. Uh, <laughs> I think you need to add like not even a bucket, not even. Get, I think you need to add about a truck, maybe a shipload of sarcasm on that. Uh, no, nah, it's not great. Um, but I will then also say that it's a market that has sort of, to some extent, declined or. Well, maybe not so much decline. I think there's still quite a lot of MMOs, MMO players in total. But I think it's it's declined somewhat in quality. It's like it's um, it's become a lot. It's become a lot of uh, <laughs> rather sketchy games that we sort of ended up with. A lot of uh, games that burn out quite fast. And I think to some extent the market or the uh, press in re uh, in relationship to that also sort of suffers because it's one of those things that's like it's limited how much you can really write about an MMO if it's not exactly sort of breaking any molds or anything. It's like you end up with mm. sort of just copy paste a couple of sentences from a from the last MMO that came out that was really uninspired. Um, I, I have to disagree that. Well, fair enough. I don't think it's that you that you can't write about it. It's that you don't have that big of an audience to read what you write about it. I think that's more of the issue because even if it's a very small, somewhat crappy MMO, you can still do a proper job writing about it the problem is that probably not a lot of people want to read it well uh, yeah but and then you sort of run into uh, the incentive problem of uh, wanting to write for it because i mean yeah sure i could well not me i'm a terrible writer but someone could write the most beautiful well-written just journalistic pulitzer prize worthy uh, articles on like I don't know, some free-to-play cash grab MMO, but if there's like five people um, playing it, it's like, yeah, I think this is somewhat of a limit how how much incentive you will really have to uh, write about it. And I think that was also another point I sort of initially made in regards to it. I think it's too, the press somewhat uh, reflects the player base itself. Like it's not like MMO players all want the same uh there's actually quite a lot of different wants here within mmos and we do then but we do tend to gravitate towards the mmos who tend to do a couple of things quite well and looks quite well runs quite well gets decent enough 
uh, updates and such. And that's not exactly that many MMOs that exist regarding that, which means, again, there's not amazingly much to write about. I think they're also somewhat in competition with just update sites. Um, I think most people essentially know about this. It's like there's MMOs every single time that there comes an update. It's like they will have every single piece of information. And those update sites will sometimes have blog posts from the uh, whoever data mines it and it's like sort of talking a little bit about these systems. I mean, it's the age old problem, as you said, like there is a relatively limited uh, audience to begin with uh, for your article center for it to be read. And there's only a couple of big, real big games, of course, that people that you would have enough audience to really read it. And then you can maybe sprinkle in some articles and other stuff and people would be interested in it. Uh, two seconds, I need to answer this. Uh, be back in a moment. Uh, I, I can go I'll ahead. Have to flop. <laughs> nah, I'm going to. Uh... Um, yeah. Uh, sorry, sorry about uh, the mic. By the way, I'm sure Card is more angry than than any of you guys are about the mic. Trust me, he loves his uh his vocal quality. But he had to deal with something in real life, so it's just last second thing. So anyway, sorry guys, but uh, yeah. So the weekly topic: What are my thoughts on the current state of MMO journalism? I mean. <laughs> I'll be honest with you guys. I don't even have the energy required to go down this topic today. Like, I'm so tired. I do not have the energy required to deep dive on this topic. What I will say, though, is that I agree with Card that you have to attribute many of the problems because of the audience or rather lack of audience. So if you're a writer and you're known for doing really nice op-eds like long uh, fucking journals or whatever else, that is a very particular kind of audience. So now imagine this. Imagine MMOs are niche games. They are, even though they're advertised as being acceptable to everybody. But inherently, they're niche games, right? Because not everybody wants to be social all the time and, and have to put in a lot of time to play a game. Some people just want to get in, get out really quickly. And so um, I, I think that when it comes to... Um, sorry. Let me get my notes up here so I remember what I was, where I was going. Yeah, I actually have notes today. Um, that's, that, that's cheating. That's what? That's cheating. Oh, is it? I mean, I gave you guys yeah, the questions can't, ahead of time. Can't notes in can't have notes notes in this exam, buddy. You have to you have to deal with this just like the rest of us. Just take it as it comes. Yeah, well, it's actually it's a specific point that I rate, and I don't know if I talked to you about this, but I talked to Card about this that I wanted to remember that. Um, so we talk about different websites for MMO journalism, and of course, there's a couple that come up. Uh, MMORPG.com has been in existence now for like ages, I think, 05 or something. So it's been around forever. And um, Massively OP, which used to be Joystick, Massively Joystick, which used to be something else. I can't remember what they were called before that. Um, that has been around for a number of years as well, but massively op is the kickstarted version of that old company that kind of got gobbled up by um joystick i believe and then kind of shuttered they made their own company massively op 
and it's crowdfunded. So I don't know if a lot of people know that. That's why I wrote it down because I wanted to remember myself because it's pretty relevant for what we're talking about here. I linked it in chat and I'll link it to you guys. All right. I'm actually I'm actually kind of surprised by that. that yeah, a, so uh... they were they were they were crowdfunded. They're a crowdfunded website, and so this is where I, I want to talk about how, in my opinion, you know, MMO journalism, as Card kind of talked about a little bit, it, it came down to because the genre wasn't doing as well. And by the way, sorry, MMORPG.com was 2001, so I was off by like three years. But um, um, what what I wanted to point out with these websites is. Both of these websites in particular who have been here for 10 years plus, a decade plus, largely have opened up the scope of what they cover. For example, when I go to MMORPG.com, I can see Destiny, I can see um, hardware reviews, there's, um, let's see, what else do we have here? I mean, I looked up Metascores by um, uh, MMORPG, and it's like, yeah. <laughs> I think I saw one MMO on the first page <laughs> and the rest were like single players and multiplayers and stuff like Right. Yeah. And so this is what you get. You scroll down here. I see Vermintide on here. Like, wow, I, I'm not even sure how that one's even related to being an MMO, but okay. Um, because it's played by a massive amount of people. And it's an amazing game that everyone should play. That's apparently coming biased. to consoles December 2019. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But, uh, yeah, so... This is kind of what you get. Like you, every now and then you just get something kind of like randomly thrown in there. And if I go here to the MMO list, they have a list. And I used to use this list all the time to look for games. Um, where is their list? Is it just games? I'm trying to remember. Yeah, here it is. Yeah. I seem to remember the same thing that they used to have a list of basically all MMOs in existence. But I think. They've basically ruined that list now, haven't they? It's like they've thrown in a bunch of uh, multiplayer games as well. Yeah, so I'm seeing MOBA. I'm seeing just straight RPGs. I'm seeing action RPGs. Um... Whoa, whoa. Was there a MMOGB? Or what the heck did it say? Oh, <laughs> MMOG. Oh, MM. Yeah, MMOG. Oh, yeah. A MOG? Yeah. yeah. It's another strange ass amalgamation term that was like, honestly, I don't see the point of the the word because it it to me it kind of seems redundant. It's but just it's just multiplayer game. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 redundant. the The extra M is definitely redundant. But yeah, I mean, look at this. I mean, you you get it used to be probably primarily MMOs, right? And that's what I remember it as. But obviously, I don't have the evidence. I didn't take a screenshot ten years ago when I was on this website, but um. I'm pretty sure you can look at the Wayback Machine, uh, the Wayback Traveler Machine that lets you go back and look at old articles and you can look at this list and I bet you it looked very different. And so the point I'm trying to drive here is that why is that? I mean, I see Hearthstone on here, a TCG. It's like, why are these games being mentioned on here? Well, first and foremost, it's because they opened you know, the, 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 I guess you would say the stable of what they cover, right? Like they cover a lot more. They cover MOBAs, they cover multiplayer games, they cover battle royales, they cover et cetera, et cetera. Where I found problem with that as an MMO uh, fan, right, is that if I want to get MMO news now, if I go to MMO RPG, it's literally in the fucking name, right? I'm getting news for a bunch of other games that I'm not really interested in. But at the same time, 
what if the uh, audience for the people who are only interested in MMOs is just a smaller audience and then therefore your model of relying on advertisement doesn't properly work. And that really like, I'm, like I said, I was too tired to go into a big rant on it. But in a nutshell, I've talked about this actually in my Patreon video. Um, so if y'all haven't seen that already and there's really good shots in there, like for example, there's a shot of me looking at GameStop at the end, which is going to be used in that video about GameStop for sure, <laughs> by the way. But in that video, I detailed basically how most media outlets, most uh, video game journalists make money, which is just it. when it comes down to it, simply put, what do you see across our entire screen here, guys? What do you see? What is like this whole big wrapper that like stretches around the entirety of the page? And when I highlight over it, it, it's hyperlinked. It's Black Desert Online, right? Does MMORPG care about the ethics of Black Desert Online? Not at all. They don't. They're showing that by advertising it, right? They don't, they're, they're basically saying whatever your opinion is of the game. We don't care. We're going to advertise the game because, of course, we need money to function as a website, but also because it's an MMO, so we're going to, like, highlight it, right? <laughs> it even says it in the, the fucking border. Join the number one PC MMORPG. It's like... That's, was it in- uh, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's quite a statement. <laughs> how, yeah, like, how is that even quantifiable? How can anyone even back that up for, from a Black Desert Online perspective? But this is no MMO idea. journalism. It's so sad. That this is this used to be the site that you went to and you got columns and reviews and there was giveaways and you found out about new MMOs you never heard about before and you got to test them out and go to the game list and just try out a bunch of different games and then we've got Fortnite ads at the top, a giant ass Black Desert Online ad that says it's the number one MMO, and then some game I've never heard of called Dragon Lord. At this point, it's like. They're trying to make as much money as possible because there's barely any audience. But there's barely any audience, in my opinion, because the the medium hasn't ad- adapted. It's it's not evolved. And you guys know, obviously, I'm personally involved in this in the sense that I am a YouTuber, a content creator who covers MMOs. That's why I started making videos was because I could tell like the industry is just not there. There isn't really an industry. It's it's you've got a crowdfunded website, which at this point. I don't even know if they realize how biased they are on certain th- on certain topics in certain games. I'm beginning to think it's just because those are the only ones who are giving them the exposure they need or if that's the only MMOs really to cover at the moment. But I've talked about this a lot. Like I've had many problems with the way that Massively Overpowered has, has handled things. I think that they do, uh, or rather I should say Bree Royce and Justin Olivetti and maybe a couple other writers put out good pieces but they have other people on there that don't seem like they know a whole lot about mmos and really care a lot about it uh like remember when we talked about the ashes of creation guy last week who was basically like uh people are just review bombing and it's like that's such a reductionist thing to say that it makes me question your like viability as a journalist if you would if you would just like reductionist reductionist take a bunch of opinions possibly valid opinions and just be like oh they're just review bombing because it's negative you know it's my my point is is that even if you leave it as a website, right? MMORPG as a website, they make money, okay, off of advertisements. I talked about it in my um, Patreon video. The way that they make money, they're they're incentivized to talk positively about certain things that maybe they don't necessarily want to talk positively about it. All right, so that's one model. The other model is massively overpowered, which is crowdfunded, crowdsourced. They have a Patreon. They get a certain amount of money every month. 
that kind of thing. The problem is, is that even though Massively Overpowered is a crowdfunded, crowdsourced website, it's still not good enough for MMO journalism. So that's where we're currently at right now, is I think that whatever is out there right now isn't really good enough. And um, I don't know what to do about it other than try and fix it myself. <laughs> I, I will say I was actually kind of worried about this topic because it's like, and this is not shots at you, but I, I, it was just a part of my brain that was sort of thinking, it's like, oh no, we're going to take down all the MMO websites just so NerdSlayer can like get a monopoly on it. But yeah, I mean, it's not great. But I mean, in general, I would say uh, gaming reviews haven't been particularly great in, well, forever. Like, I can't remember a time that uh, video games review, uh, video game reviews were great. Like, well, can, can I can I interrupt you for a second? Because like I agree, like quality wise, but you have to admit those review uh, YouTubers and review sites do like numbers, like. These review YouTubers like ACG, like they do, like, did you buy this or uh, uh, what's that one series called where it's like, um, should you buy this or whatever? There's multiple reviewer guys out there, dude, who do monster numbers, but there's no oh. MMO reviewer guys. We know why, but do you think that that has something to do with it, perhaps? Well, <laughs> you freaking broke my point. My point was actually that uh, at least when it comes to written reviews, that I would say have somewhat declined over time, but okay. it has been picked up by YouTubers. Mm. I, I think there's a lot of really good. Uh, there's there's a few. Uh, I would say when it comes to sort of quick reviews, I don't really like anyone there. But something like analysts, which is sort of deep uh, analytic um, works in regards to video games and uh, specific games, that I think is actually quite superb these days. Um, so, like something, uh, someone like uh, what's his name, Joseph Anderson. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Granted, uh, <laughs> I think three hours for like one video game might be just a bit too much. Um, but yeah, uh, I think YouTubers uh, have somewhat taken over in that regard uh, to what I would call respected and revered. Um, reviews and uh gaming news they're still a, it's like they're still trash i was gonna say the, should we talk about still trash <laughs> don't worry don't worry i i won't forget that uh, that absolutely also exists and it unfortunately does gobble up quite a lot of um views uh but then there's mmo uh, or mmo rpgs or mmos in general uh, and there, there's not really been one there. I mean, there's, uh, I have to admit and sort of sh show my hand here. I don't actually really watch anything of Lazy Peons. Does he actually do reviews or sort of analytical work of uh, MMOs? Or is he sort of just shallowly dipping his toes into that? He's, um, he's, uh, uh, I think you call it first impressions. And I think that it's a form of a review, but it's a very specific kind of review. It's a review okay. that's more so based off of your immediate reactions and, and kind of making that entertaining as well. And I think that he does a really good job of that. But I think that that's obviously clear in a way very different from a review. 
where I take issue with first impressions, and again, I, this is just a personal thing. It's not that I'm saying first impressions are bad. Ultimately, I think they're very useful. In fact, sometimes I like listening to first impressions. That being said, I take issue with them because it's like a first impression in an MMO is very misleading. It's very, very, very misleading. In fact, most of the time, um, at least back in the day, it was more so like that. It's kind of flipped on its head now, which is funny. But remember back in the days when MMOs were all front-loaded? All of the good content was at the beginning, and then it kind of was like shit at the end. That's how it kind of <laughs> was at first, right? And then it kind of like yeah. switched on its head where now all the best content's at the end, so everyone just rushes to the end. Um, and obviously, WoW was you know a big reason for that because of the way that the game shifted and, and, and changed over its many years of uh, live service. But... Um, Wait, what, what did someone say? I mean, uh, which means he would think Age of Conan would be Game of the Year. <laughs> yeah, Game of, or, uh, Age of Conan is a perfect example. where it's uh, Actually, let's use Age of Conan in this uh, example. If I'm a first impressionist and I play Age of Conan, dude, I'm giving that shit like a 8.5 or something. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm giving it like a really good score. This is an awesome setting. I love the lore. I love the classes. The combat's cool. Like the the early game experience, like PvP is awesome. There's a directional blocking system. Are you kidding me? Like there's, how do you not love this game? It's so awesome. And then you leave Tortage, which is after level 20. <laughs> and then you're like, what the fuck happened to the rest of the game? It's like, it just like, it's not there. Like you felt like you played through most of the game already. And um, obviously they've, they've, you know, attempted to fix it at later uh, uh, renditions of multiple updates, going free to play, all that other stuff. But the thing about that, if like you went in as a first impressionist and you reviewed a game like Age of Conan or even Wildstar, you'd be like, man, this is, a, this is a pretty cool game. But you wouldn't even understand what problems the game has yet because if it is a social game, as you know, Lemboss is a social person, when you go into a new social environment, you don't immediately know everything socially, right? Like you have to learn it. It's kind of like you're like, all right, this person's there. They're dating this person. It's like this whole process of like learning the information. I think the same thing applies to an MMO. If it's supposed to be another world that encourages social interactions, it's not like you can just know how the world functions or doesn't function just by playing like 10 levels of it or 20 levels of it. You literally have to go in and be like, I'm going to experience this game to be an MMO reviewer. Like you you actually need to live it, you know? It, it's different than maybe a single player game. You can kind of rush through the storyline, beat it, or maybe even just like get through most of it and say, oh, I didn't have enough time because my review deadline, which is probably a valid uh, thing to say, but still, I mean, they say it a lot. Um, in the case of an MMO, a deadline doesn't work. <laughs> you know, Not really, I mean, like I told you guys that I have a deadline um, this year. I'm trying to get out both my Arc Age and my WoW reviews, but like, I'm I'm sweating like like that's that's a scary deadline for me because I'm thinking man two fucking MMO reviews in the next two months like that's not going to be easy but that being said I've been doing nothing but fucking playing uh in my free time primarily so it's like at this point um I've seen it as a way to kind of support my my selfish playing habits and desires to want to play these games period I can also oh, use that as a means to uh support um, my analysis of the game, uh, my uh, opinions of the game, and then hopefully inform other people. Maybe they can learn from watching my video instead of, you know, having to spend as many hours as I spent in the game to learn that lesson, you know? Because like, let's just be honest, like, reviews for MMOs would be, like, the perfect game you would to want to be reviewed. You know what I'm saying, uh, Limpos? Like, 
you you wouldn't want to put a hundred uh, billion hours well, into a game if it sucked and you realize that at level sixty. Uh, uh, <laughs> right. I, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, I quit WoW shortly after I hit sixty, so I don't know, man. <laughs> I feel I feel baited, uh, but. Uh, uh, I actually disagree when it comes to that because it's like I think, um, and it's going to be exceptionally hard to explain because, like reviewing a MMOs, like there's so many elements to a MMO that you would need to um, sort of analyze. You'd have to look at it and how they all sort of function together, and how they. Um, like cooperate with each other it's like there's just so many elements that you have to get right and try and con uh, put down on paper or in a video or whatever and even then it's like i mean i've even had friends who've sort of um suggested uh, suggested mmo suggested mmos to me over the years like oh you'll love this oh it's great everything and it's like i play it and it's like 100 hours in it's like nope uh, this is not great, guys. <laughs> it's like you lied to me, and it's like you're supposed to know me. Um, but still, I do feel that if one had, if one could, and it's like that's what that's what I just I have sort of an in, in, innate doubt that you can really translate how an mmo feels in as it in the whole in its whole simply because it's like it's so many elements and it also depends on who you are as a person because i mean even even though i quit something like classic wow that's not so much the reason because i wasn't enjoying the game uh, it was sort of just more i felt there was certain elements of it that was wasting my time which is as i get older and older i <laughs> i it tends to cut down on how much free time you have and it's like if this was back when i was say 15 or something it's like oh my lord i would have loved this game it would have been amazing but now when it takes me 20 minutes to get a group to go to a dungeon and then it takes 15 minutes to get to the dungeon then i have to buff then i have to mana then we have to do a thousand <laughs> different uh packs of mobs and dungeon takes like two hours and it's like no no i can't do this i'm getting too old for this um and that's just that uh, that can be quite hard to translate into words to something or at least uh, actually no that wrong opposite that you can actually translate into words, but the problem, or oh, not the problem, but that then becomes uh, how do you represent that? Is that a positive or negative? Well, that depends on how much time you have, how much patience you have, and how good you are at wasting time. <laughs> I think the more that you explain yourself, though, the better you do in that sense that ultimately a review is subjective. But if you do your best job to quantify exactly why you think a certain way, that's about as objective as you can get. I mean, ultimately, it is just like, for example, I can sit here and try and obsess over being the purely objective person. But like in the same way that biased man is incredibly biased to, to the point of he doesn't care about facts, 
obviously the same can exist the other way because it's just like ultimately I'm a subjective being, right? Like I even perceiving the world is subjective to me. Like even seeing different colors is subjective to me. And so there's a whole layer of subjectivity that goes into it. I think um, the problem with subjectivity oftentimes is because people don't have, and I heard this, I stole this from somebody else, um, totally an unlikely source, but if Ludens is in chat, then he knows who I'm talking about, but it's from Crooked Eye, who's one of the members of the Slaughterhouse Gang. Uh, you know, it's, it's a group. It's not a gang. It's a group um, that was with Joe Budden and uh, Joey, D, or, um, Joey Ortiz and uh, one other person. Oh, uh, Royce to 5'9". And I was watching one of his uh, interviews, and he, he talked about that. Uh, it, it, I don't know. It, it was just interesting. But he was like, I think a lot of people hide behind it's subjective because they don't have the, the knowledge or the ability, the technical ability to break it down. And I, and I was like, huh. I thought that that was like a pretty interesting perspective. Obviously, it, it can't be one-to-one because I don't believe that everything can be objective 100%, right? I don't think anything can, honestly. Um, that being said, that I kind of agree that a lot of people will hide behind subjectivity as a means to just not be criticized so, so they don't have to stand on anything in particular. And I think that if you're going to make it uh, an MMO review, for example, you better be ready for a lot of criticism because <laughs> everyone's going to hit you with kind of like what you were saying. Like, wait a minute. You said you don't like that, but I like that. So, you know, screw you. You suck. And it's like, all right. I mean, that's your opinion, but ultimately it's also my opinion. So if I don't want to play because I don't like it for these reasons, then you can't tell me that I should like it for these reasons. It's not going to magically me uh, magically make me like it, you know? <laughs> and I used to deal with that a lot with games like WoW. So it's funny that you just encountered it where you hit max level and then you kind of like don't really know what to do. That was exactly what happened to me in Wildstar. I hit max level and literally the next day I quit. Like, I was just like, oh. I didn't know, like, I, I was looking at the war plots. I was looking at all these features that I had already tested in, in beta and, and alpha. I was already max level in those. So it's not like I hadn't got to max level already, I should say. But I got to max well, level and I was like, oh, yeah. So there's nothing else here still. Yeah, well, I'm I had, done. Well, I actually knew what to do, which was run the last three, oh, actually not just three, four dungeons, like 10 times each. I was like, oh, that's only like 80 hours. I was like, you know, I could spend my time a little more productive. There's uh, better games to play out there than this, even though it's fun. Uh, like, I mean, I think that's fairly obvious. I do like talking like a lot. And uh, I also love meeting new people, but not for that much time <laughs> and especially not since then it's an MMO so I always feel compelled to stay at least somewhat somewhat competitively uh, with the uh, top uh, progressors um, but actually it's something that's very uh, I, I actually want to use an example and this is something I've talked on Discord a couple of times but um, to sort of give an idea of objective versus subjective and how objective can sometimes uh, be better as an objective, the subjective can actually, can end up being what you spend your time with. And that's Witcher 3 versus something like Skyrim. Because uh, of those two, I would absolutely say Witcher 3 is way superior in almost every thinkable way. But when Witcher 3 came out, I think I finished about half the game and then I dropped it for like four months. And then I finished it, 
played the first DLC, the second DLC, Blood and Wine came out, and I think that it sort of just the main story, and that was it. It was like, like the game, but not that much. Uh, but then there's something like Skyrim, which I've played like 20 times. It was like, and over years, it was like, it's something I always could return to and find something interesting, interesting to do. But the thing is... <laughs> It's not a good game. It's like I really there's very few things that I can describe objectively that that game is good. But if I was to just be subjective, it was like well, because it's enjoyable just running around in the world, and sometimes you run across a creature, sometimes you run across a cave. It's funny being either a sneaky thief or mage or a warrior. Something that Witcher Three didn't really let me do, and. I wouldn't say that so few elements should make me way more interested in one game above the other, but it did. So, subjectively, I like a subjectively subjectively I like an objectively bad game. Yeah, no, and actually, that's a I don't know. There's a word for it, but I know exactly what you're talking about. It's a concept that I've talked about before, but it's almost like your 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 favorite worst movie. You know, it's like 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 that kind of like thing where it's like, what? Isn't that an oxymoron like favorite worst? But it's but it's like, no, like you mean like it's your favorite movie that, you know, is kind of like objectively not very good, but you still like it for whatever selfish reasons. And um, I'm trying to think of the best example of this for myself in terms of things that were rated a certain way that I think very highly of. <clears throat> Man, I would probably say. Darkfall, right? Darkfall was objectively bad in some ways, and I think that it had a lot of clear issues and problems, and yet I can still see a lot of positive in it. But maybe a more extreme example would be something closer to, like, um, a Resident Evil game for me. I don't know. Like, <laughs> oh <laughs> I mean, that depends on how high a number that is. It's like, actually, <laughs> I would have to check this, but I actually think in accordance to Metacritic, it actually go, it becomes lower and lower the higher number you go until you hit like seven, then it but, sort of peaks up. That's what I was going to argue as well. Is the, the ones that I played were the originals. So I played one, two, and then Nemesis, which I think is like a 2.5, I think, or 1.5, or a prequel. I can't remember it, what Nemesis is. I'm sure somebody in chat knows. No idea. <laughs> Somebody in chat uh, knows this. It's, it's going to be random and, and watch. Somebody's going to know it. That's the beautiful thing about having a community of people who love to be nerds. <laughs> They're all going to know some shit that you don't know, and you're going to know some shit they don't know, and then you can share your information together. Yeah. But I mean, to sort of to jump a little bit, um, like that's actually one of those things that I am very interested in to see is your reviews of something like, wow and our gauge, how you're going to go through that process and how you, it's like one thing that I particularly uh, am interested to see is sort of how you keep an, a red line through it all, like how you're going to marry all the elements of a MMO in without it. Or, I mean, I'm not going to tell you how to do it. I mean, friggin' heck. No, I understand <laughs> it's a I'm, big I'm ask. I'm not the one with uh, <laughs> a bunch of uh, YouTube subscribers. Um, um, without it just being sort of a um, historical piece. It's like, oh, and then I went to this dungeon, and then I went out leveling, and then I went to the next dungeon. But instead, sort of how, 
I mean, just how it's all married and how you're going to sort of go down a list of those things and it's like sometimes bringing things back. I mean, if I can do one example of just something terrible and it's like that was um, Joseph Henderson's video on uh, Fallout because I'm fairly sure, like he references a system of um, like sort of or free points and how that's sort of circular. That's fine, and it's like it's absolutely true. But I'm fairly freaking sure he goes back like five times and explains that system again each time he references it. And I was like, I'm just sitting there tearing my hair out. It's like I know this. I'm watching the video right now, dude. It's like <laughs> this is not a follow up. I think he lacks structure, though. To be honest, like I, I, I mean, I watch the other uh, content creators who um, I respect a lot, like very closely, and I, of course, try and learn from them as much as possible. And um, when I look at Joseph Anderson, I always see somebody who clearly has a lot to say. But just because you have a lot to say doesn't mean you could you you should spend three hours saying it. Sometimes it's better to condense your thoughts, get some structure, and try and put it into something that's a lot more uh, digestible. Because what I learned honestly, Limpos, is um, when it comes to uh, making a review or even just a video on YouTube. It's different than just writing a script. It's different than just writing an article because you're also thinking about the engagement of watching, right? It's a, it's a different medium that you can literally see whatever is being represented. So whenever my editor, uh, Tom, does some crazy-ass transition and it seems like it goes along with what I'm saying, that's what we're trying to convey, that it does go along. You know what I'm saying? Like it's designed like that to be a, to be a seen as like a show. And so like in, in the case of a review, it's certainly going to be very um, uh, production heavy. Like it's going to be a lot of writing, a lot of time and a very production heavy. But what I will say in terms of what you were asking about how I would go about it, I actually am like scared, which makes me excited. I'm one of those people who, when I kind of feel a little bit scared, that's when I'm like, oh man, this is something that's going to like be exciting. And um, that when it comes to MMO reviews, they legit scare me. Like I'm intimidated by them. And to me, that's like so exciting to find something that like I'm afraid of that I want to face and I want to figure it out. So I've luckily Limpos thought about it a lot. <laughs> I've been thinking about it since I was a kid. I've always had the dream of doing MMO reviews. So I will say that I've been thinking about it for a long time. But you're absolutely right in that there has to be a very sensitive touch uh, shown whenever you do an MMO review. Because like you said, it's not as simple as just being like, Graphics, gameplay, um, performance, there you go. It's, it's not as simple as that because there's so many little interactions between those things. And, and also those things get changed by social uh, situations and social interactions. For example, how are you going to complain about a game's graphics when it has 10,000 people on screen? You can't in the same way. Once you connect those things together, the massive part with the other parts of the game, you know, we talk about that all the time. If I review an MMO just like a game review, oh my God, dude, they would be shit. <laughs> they would not. I'm, I'm, I'm fairly sure five would suddenly become the highest praise that you would ever get. Legitimately like 10, speaking, no sixes way. would be like a great game. You'd be like, wow, a yeah, six? Yeah, this is a great game. Yeah. Yeah, essentially, at least if you go from uh, five being sort of like the absolute average that you can do, then yeah, six would probably be 
really the highest you would ever go when it comes to an MMO, which is also why, I mean, continuously say that. And this is like, it, the only reason they work is because you have a community holding it up and because there's, there's very different interactions that occur that you just don't really find in other games, which I will actually say that's not on, that's not true any longer. Ever since something like, um, uh, all those survival games came out, um, that sort of dynamic sort of started to happen in other games suddenly. Uh, the same thing with uh, some of those games they've sort of made into RP games like Armor, which I, I'm not going to comment on. <laughs> and then something like GTA V, where they modded it into being a, a role-playing game, which it's actually very interesting like i actually find the gta rp a very interesting idea it's not something that i have any incentive to do because i'm not good at rp i'm good at talking but i'm not good at rp um but i still do find it very interesting and it's fun to watch sometimes but i also know what happens between those clips that people throw at uh, each other. And it's like, it's 90% just really awkward um, small talk as well as just standing around doing nothing. Um, but for some people, those 10% of the time is worth it, which, yeah, it's a bit the same with MMOs. It's like, no, it's not fun running around killing the same mobs clicking like for the four same button every single time because combos and combinations and whatnot that's for that's that's for proper games uh but then once in a while you come across some interesting person it was like and i will actually say that's why i was kind of happy we actually ended up on an rp server because i actually ended up in some very interesting situations from time to time uh with our peers and it's like the and that is interactions that you just don't really always or don't really find in so many other games i there are a few situations in multiplayer games but they are more rare i think it's more uh, so as well like we talk about multiplayer online rpgs and massive multiplayer online rpgs it's like what's the what's the core difference between them like when it when you break it down to the brass tacks if you will it comes down to one can function as a single player game as well the other one literally can't like it literally would not function if, if you took out the other players and you just played it by yourself the game would not function and a good example of that again is one of my favorite mmos ever it's galaxies without players in that game dude it does not function there's just too much shit to do too much shit to craft like you would have to make so many accounts to be able to like possibly produce everything in the game to play it and make it function as a world and so it's like if you're wondering how do I know if a game is MMO or whatever else? Like you can ask yourself or you can just think about that. Think about like this social world is more than just a game because if it was just a game, then people would just do the activities that they're required to. But that's not always what happens, right? Lempos, you were just talking about the stories on the role play server. I have a bunch of great stories too that I want to tell about uh, my time spent in WoW. I've had some really hilarious RP situations and it's like, does that normally happen if I just play the game for the game's sake? It doesn't. It doesn't. It happens because I, I was playing the game and I saw somebody and I interacted with them. That's a social interaction. Now the game has become a lot more than just a game, right? Because now I'm interact. I'm not just saying, screw you guys, I'm a teabag you, you're shit. I'm not, that's not how I'm interacting with them. I'm saying, oh, hey, do you guys need some help? Like, 
or if I roll up on a guy and he's getting killed by another player, I kill him. And then the, the guy's like, thank you, thank you, thank you. And he gives me food and drink. It's like, that's the kind of shit that can happen in an MMO. It, it's totally like it can happen randomly too. Like, for example, <laughs> I um, was in Searing Gorge and I was like uh, killing these uh, dark iron uh, geologists or whatever. And all of a sudden I look to the left of me and there's a full raid of Alliance members who just run right by me. But like they kind of left me there. So I just stood there because I was like, you know, how like when you ever seen those movies where it's like a big herd comes, and you just stand there because you're like totally taken aback by it. That was exactly what happened to me. But they ran all, you know, they all ran by me. But it was still like that interaction. Could I have had that if there wasn't players there? Like, obviously not. If those were NPCs, I wouldn't have had the same reaction. But I had that reaction because I knew they were players. So I was like, fuck, they might actually want to kill me. <laughs> but they're thinking about it. It's not just they're going to attack me every time they see me like an NPC does. They're thinking, hmm, should we kill this guy? Like, and so you kind of have to, you know, protect yourself. And so like when someone walks up to you, a high level a character, level 60, and he waves at you and you don't wave back. A lot of the times the high level player will just kill you. <laughs> I see it happen a lot. Like Bacon Knight oh, does yeah. it all the time. Like he'll walk up to someone, he'll wave at them, he'll like greet them. They don't say anything back, he'll immediately kill them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've uh, I've met or oh, I know people uh, that do uh, similar things like uh, to lower level players like uh, try and be courteous and nice and if they aren't courteous and nice back, well then you kill them. <laughs> Which I mean, it's it's better than just killing them uh, uh, without uh, or indisc indiscriminate, whatever the word is. Um, but yeah, actually, uh, saying the thing about the horde, you know, I actually kind of realized that it's like even though that's such a small thing, like twenty, thirty, forty people sort of riding in the same direction. Again, you just don't see that in other games, and it, it's it's weird that such a simple thing mm -hmm. can be impressive, but it sort of just is. I mean, it would be in real life as well. <laughs> if forty people charges past you, you're going to look a little bit, just a tad, unless they're wearing numbers, then they're just running marathons. And that that's the main point, though, is like that part can't get understated. Is that ultimately the the most important part is that it does function like that in the real world, the real world. And so therefore you, when you see a big social group and you feel like maybe a little bit of anxiety, that's that might be how you feel in real life. So like a lot of the time I've noticed for myself is yes, talking in an MMO is totally different than talking in person from the perspective of you're, you're missing out on body language, which is a huge part of communication. Um, if you guys aren't familiar with that already, maybe we can dedicate a stream to talking about communication, how it works, how it functions and, I can explain that shit, but I took a psychology class at my university, but also am, as you guys know, deeply interested in social dynamics. So I've studied it a lot myself and it's just, um, you, you miss out on some of that stuff. It's also like, you know, people's names and yet they don't really know you. And so what I notice happens a lot in real life is I've had spillover from my social skills from MMOs actually affect my real life. And like a good example of this is, um, sometimes whenever people tell me their names, I, I forget their names like so often I forget people's names and I, and I was like one day I just thought to myself I was like why am I so bad at remembering names and then I thought to myself well it was staring literally right in front of me as I'm staring at the, the character I was playing with big ass text right above my name <laughs> you know what I'm saying it's like my teammate I know what his name is because it's literally like shown to me 24 7 so I'm like 
oh, that's a, that's a blah, blah, blah. That's, that's Limpos. That's Limpos. And I know it's you. I see your avatar. I see your character name. And I know it's you. In person, as you know, it's not necessarily like that. In fact, if I stare at somebody like that, like, hey, I know you. I know your name. They'll probably look at me like I'm fucking crazy. And so, like, it's a little bit, the context is different. But what I do want to uh, bring it back to is that although the context is different, it's very similar. And the point that I wanted to make about bringing up, like, RP stories is... um if you look at like very cool MMO stories, you could be the most negative Nancy possible. Here's a good example. The story I just told you about that raid group running by and kind of like looking at me and like contemplating my fate and then leaving me. Uh, if I describe that in a video game term, here's how it would be described. I was in a contested area. There were some enemies there. They ran by me and chose not to attack me because it was probably a waste of their time since they got no gain from it. There, I just explained the game mechanic to you. That, that's not very exciting to me. I, it's probably not very exciting to many people, which is why WoW isn't really played as a PvP game until they came up with the idea of honor points, right? And even then, it's haphazard, or it's like, not haphazard, it's um, it's more minuscule when compared to other PvP-centric games. So I can take an, an example like that, and you could tell me a story, Limpos, and I could do the same thing to you, and you could do it to me too. We could reduction, uh, We could be reductionist take each other's stories and then turn them into like, oh, that's just like, what's the point though? You didn't get anything from that. You didn't get any cool money. You didn't get an achievement. You didn't get a nice piece of gear. So therefore the story you just told me doesn't matter. Well, the funny thing was the, that you all, what you just did was also, uh, you described objectively what the game is, but not subjective. Yeah. You didn't, tell, you didn't talk about experiences, which mm -hmm. are subjective. You, yep. you told it objectively what happened and uh, sort of why. It was like, which is a pretty bad idea when you think about it mm -hmm. uh, when describing MMOs. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, and I'm just sitting here thinking, holy heck, all my Planet High 2 time has been wasted. It's been nothing than, <laughs> than standing in contested territory <laughs> while enemies go to <laughs> shoot after me. It's like, oh no, I wasted so much time on this nonsense. But I mean, that's the reality is that it's like I played with so many hilarious people and we did so many crazy things that, yeah, just uh, <laughs> if you reduce it into uh, fairly, uh, well, not even basic, but sort of just sort of take the personal aspect off away from it, you end up with uh, games that sound very boring. Yeah, Which... and then the reverse is, um, let's talk about Massively Overpowered again to bring it back to the topic. Uh, then you'll have the opposite where it's too subjective. There's not enough objectivity. And so then, therefore, you don't actually know what's going on. And so, like, in the same way that I can be a reductionist and just be like, here's the logical process of, a, of an online game. And that strips away, like you said, all of the subjectivity from it, all of the community, all of the player interactions, player opinions, like the personal feelings of it. Um, the opposite can be true as well. You can look at a game with, as we like to call it, nostalgia glasses, and then next thing you know, you're like, this is the greatest thing ever. It had no flaws. That's why I made my video about galaxies. I talk about it a lot, but it's like, that was the crux of why I made my video, was because I thought that the prevailing wisdom on the game was just wrong. I didn't disagree with it. I thought it was wrong. And so like, that's why I made that video, but also in that video, of course, there's a lot of talk about subjective experiences and and what things mean and how they make you feel, but that's a total different thing sometimes than, or at least for some people, it's a different thing than 
actually being objective. And so the journalism uh, part becomes a problem, I think, when a journalist is unable to be objective in some way. Because if you're just subjective about your experiences, then it's like, I don't necessarily know if that's that useful to me if you're so much different than I am, for example. So like, what if we're just a completely different person and you give me a very subjective review? I mean, I'm kind of going to look at it like, all right, well, that's his opinion. You know, like there's, it's not the same level of weight of if you said, well, here's the shop system and here's actually like planned out how much money you'd have to spend in order to do this. And I'd be like, oh, well, shit. That objective argument made me feel a kind of way, subjectively. Well, you sort of have to marry the two that uh, a game is fun and this thing feels fun or good because of certain elements that you then describe in objective uh, terms. It's like, for example, um, I think one of the sort of usual ones is something like combat, uh, usually like some something like melee. Melee kind of have to feel heavy to also feel good mm. it's very few games at least if it's if it's a moderately paced combat game there needs to be some kind of weight behind it and i'm not entirely sure why i think it's uh i don't know <laughs> it's probably something to do how our brain sort of uh to uh, analyzes whatever the heck is going on in front of us um and but and that and once you have described that because of the weight because of the uh, the interpretation of impact that your weapons are doing it feels good um you then also need to explain uh, how your inputs feel so can i shit on myself for a second cuz it's related sure. to what you're saying um, I've talked about it before, so you might have remembered, but remember when I did that EVE Online, like, why don't play video? What you're talking about is exactly the thing that I felt like I failed the most at doing. And it's, it's explaining the gameplay to somebody in a way that explains the subjective experience mirrored with the, um, or sorry, not mirrored, but just like in, in a line as well with the objective experience. And so, like, I was telling people, here's objectively how it is. And so, so many people attacked me subjectively. And, 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 like, justifiably so, because they're thinking to themselves, wait a minute, that's not my experience. Like, why are you saying that? And it's like, shit, <laughs> I just realized I, I essentially fell victim to what I described, which is, like, I didn't give enough of my subjective experience and, and feeling, kind of like you're describing right now with the gameplay and all of that stuff, like, how combat feels and how it's heavy. I didn't explain that very well. And so I think that that was a big reason why that I got a lot of negative uh, hate from the Eve community for that video. And myself, I, I don't like the video that much because of that reason. It's why I want to do reviews. But anyway, sorry. Uh, I had to shit on myself for a second because it was along what you were saying. Yeah. Uh, well, I was also kind of, I was kind of uh, petering out of the point. But yeah, uh, and I will admit the only reason that I know or the reason that I can explain all of this is because it was a trait that I noticed in Total Biscuit and the way that he would uh, analyze games. Like he would do that. He would he would say that something was fun or felt good and then he would go through sort of the objective points that he could sort of point out that was either fairly visible or something he could explain to greater detail uh, on how it worked and why it worked. And then go back to saying, and that's why it's fun. Um, 
uh, I think uh, one particular, th- and I think one of the best examples that I can give when it comes to combat feeling good and heavy and feeling like it has impact is uh, the Arkham style of combat with teeny tiny slowdowns whenever you hit something. Mm. I don't know if you've ever noticed how many games actually have that kind of combat and how how effective it actually is. It's like it, it, there's just something about that teeny tiny slowdown whenever you hit something. And Spider Man has it too, right? Spider Man, Shadow of Mordor. Mm-hmm. I think there's a couple of other games who've uh, implemented. With so you're saying like playing degrees. with the tempo of it, you know, like yeah, okay. Like, I th- it's like I think that small slowdown sort of let your lets your brain sort of interpret okay impact now we can go back to the uh, the usual pace of course there uh, are uh, do exist games who then i would say somewhat breaks that mold and that's games who are really really fast uh where if there was impact it would be really really yeah uh uh, it would it would make the game feel just weird because it's on it's on it's it's superhuman speed that we sometimes talk uh, talk about in some of these games where suddenly having impact would be very weird, but that can still function uh, as long as you make uh, the super fast combat then somehow engaging in other ways which will be dodging or running around a room and it's like and i'm mostly thinking about something like ninja gaiden which yeah. are fun games to just sprint around in, on on top of a, a room and just plinking away at people and it's like those are fun games but as i say they don't exactly have a lot of impact but they still manage to make it fun that's a good point and i think that that's something is just severely lacking in MMOs because kind of a, a mixture of technical limitations at first but now so it's almost like it's um it's misinformation mixed with um a misunderstanding of the market and so like what I'm saying is is that I often very often will see this and I'm sure you've probably heard it since playing WoW but people will defend that style of game and defend it from the perspective of oh it's it, this is just how MMOs are and that's when I get the most annoyed because I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not how MMOs are. That's how that MMO is. MMOs, if they could be, if the techn- technological limitations weren't there initially, if they had the ability to create games that, like, for example, right now, if, if you could say they had technology 2019 back in 99, you guys think they would have came out the same way they did? Like, I mean, like, it's just a completely insane opinion to have if you would think that, right? Like, to think that, the technical limitations didn't severely impact the way that the games were designed from a combat perspective. It's admitted by nearly all of the developers I've ever read uh, who talk about the subject. Like the Asheron's Call developer talked about it. Um, what's another one that I just recently covered? Oh, Auto Assault. They talked about how they, like the developers talked about how they didn't even like playing the game. Like, I mean, like people will talk about things like this and tell you that legitimately because they went massive they incurred so many problems or because they they stayed with an old school like ancient engine or they got scammed into buying the hero engine (laughs) they they got sold into buying the hero engine but like the point being is like the the expectations are so fucking low man and that's where it's like I, i like to talk about combat and i think that you made me think about a lot of interesting things in regards to that that i still haven't 
done a good job of covering yet because there's so much to cover with mmos like every day i feel like i get something new added and it's just like it feels like it's good right i always have work but it also feels like it's like man there's so much shit that needs to be taught to the masses basically as many people as i can possibly reach and i think that combat's one of those things where we shouldn't have low expectations of mmo combat because mmo combat has sucked in the past we should have neutral expectations based on whatever game and and whatever the scale of the game is and so like if the game is trying to be camelot unchained for example where they have massive amounts of people on screen we're going to forgive them if they don't look like arcade or we're going to forgive it if it doesn't you know what i'm saying like we're going to forgive it if it doesn't look like a a certain other kind of like really good looking game but well, if, i think hmm? i think when it comes to mmos like there, there should be some tolerance that certain elements are not going to be amazing, right? But uh, and espe- and especially if you want to focus really hard, which is something like uh, what um, Camelot Unchained is uh, wants to do, which is it's like they want the capability of having a lot of people on screen uh, at the, or in the same place at the same time. Which, at least in those situations, you will have to bear with the notion. That that might not look great, <laughs> or it might not. Uh, it's like suddenly some elements might not be as visible as they have been before. But as long as you still have indications uh, of where you can't stand and such and such, well, then you are still getting quite the experience, especially when it's that many people. I think that's something a lot of people actually underestimate. Is how much uh, how how interesting it is whenever you have more than a hundred people, because we're so unused to it. Like even something like Battlefield, which for the longest time was sort of one of the biggest multiplayer game with sixty four people. Yeah, you barely ever see half, which is kind of impressive when you think about it. It's like thinking about how small some of those maps are you barely end up seeing half of those players at any given time. but And that's simply because, I mean, those maps are made, uh, I mean, they're made well, they're not open fields, which, because, because <laughs> I'll be a very boring game. But if you think something like an MMO, then suddenly an open field is a, an availability or terrain. Uh, <laughs> actually, I think you've shown that before where it's in, uh, in Darkfall, where it's like people coming over a uh, the top of a hill and it's like, wow, that's... Uh, quite the the experience to see oh yeah imagine if you also can be looted and lose all your shit like imagine the adrenaline that you would feel to see a big group of like war pigs standing over the horizon and you're with your little group of like three four people and you're like what the fuck Uh oh should we like hail them should we run like what are our options here and obviously i've talked many times about the problems of that game the problem is most of the time you would just kill, <laughs> but in a in a good game, a game that fixes those problems, which I mean, you can fix those problems because the world often fixes those problems where not everybody just looks at somebody and is like, I'm going to kill you, <laughs> right? Right? I mean, like, there's some people like that in the world for sure, but most of us aren't just looking at somebody and like, I'll kill you when we see them randomly out in the world. We're thinking, who is this person and what are they going to do? You know, like, what is their motivation? What's my motivation? How do, how are we related? Do we know each other? Whatever else, right? I mean, that's actually one of the most interesting things from uh, classic WoW was that, yeah, you tend to not kill people sort of in uh, without reason, but when do you kill people the most? Well, that's when they take your quest uh, creatures, mm-hmm. right? And it's like, 
just that small element of them being a slight nuisance because they're taking your freaking quest <laughs> quest kills is like, oh, I'm killing this dude. Oh, yeah. I've done that oh, myself. Yeah, which, I'm very guilty of that. Which, granted, I mean, I never did it on my own because I played a holy priest, which i'm not exactly killing anyone but uh, you know up i i put patuk in the killing to some extent i'll i'll take some credit you can always wand him down when he gets low indeed assert dominance um anyway i feel like we've we've gone all over the place now and it's gone on for a while i don't want to keep you here longer sure. and i wanted to answer a oh, little uh, bit of if i questions. if if i could if mm -hmm. i could just one last thing sure uh, and that's actually was especially because I remember it is something in regards to PvP because that one is also very 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 hard to address objectively. Um, uh, very hard to address very objectively. It's like you sort of you sort of need to throw a bit of subjectivity in. It's like yeah, it is. It it either feels good or it feels bad. It's like uh, it's a bit like um, it's a bit like first per uh, first person shooter maps. Like sometimes there's just maps that are wrong, and you can't always put a thing on it. It's like even though the map sort of objectively looks good, and it's like all the good elements are here, and it's like nah. And that can also, and that's one very very interesting thing because from uh, just remembering now something from Planetside Two, it's like. Not only can like the map or the game be good, the maps or in the case of an MMO, the sort of terrain can be great and all those things. But if a meta, if a meta, uh, if a meta comes into existence that sort of works in contrast to those good elements, then you're also in a very problematic situation because. You've 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 put all the right elements in, but players okay. refuse to go the proper way. I was like, uh, suddenly, it's like right because suddenly your objective sort of an, an, an analysis of how the system works is suddenly counteracted by the players. Now you can of course try and tweak to uh, um, circumvent those problems. To some extent, sometimes there are just metas that seem to. I mean, it's not even that those metas are effective; they're just annoying. Hence, people will continue doing them. Yeah, actually, that's like a very nuanced discussion. I think I, I don't even know how I would like explain that to the. The hardest part that I suffer from, as you know, obviously, is like when it comes to uh, how much money I make as a person. I, I can't really focus on very esoteric ideas because it's hard to sell to enough people in, in order for me to make a living. But what you talked about, honestly, is like one of those things where it goes along with the discussion about the meta that I talk about a lot, too. And, and, and it really is. It's like directly related to the meta discussion where it's like you can talk about an objective meta. You can talk about a subjective meta. But the problem is, is that sometimes players can take subjectivity and actually make it rule out. They can actually make it better, even though it's not statistically the best thing. Or sometimes players can take, obviously, um, the objective best thing and kind of show people, hey, this is the objective best thing and subjective best thing because of X, Y, and X, uh, or X, Y, and Z. But that ultimately, it's very nuanced because somebody, um, from the perspective of, like, I don't know, 
if your game is Black Desert Online, you're always going to feel like your game's very complex because it might be the only game you know that's like that. But maybe somebody else is like, well, I don't think it's that complex because I've played X game, you know, whatever game that is for you that you think is more complex than that. And so then it becomes, how do you compare those two things together if you don't actually know what it feels like? And that's the hardest part, Limpos, that I've been suffering from with trying to teach people about moving away from simplistic, boring, outdated ass combat systems is that if I tell them that this combat system has existed before, they tell me, but that game failed. I'm just like, I, I just, yeah, I always end up back there, man, where I'm just like, I don't think you guys understand that a game doesn't fail because of its best aspect. It fails because of its worst aspects. <laughs> Darn, I was going to say that because that's actually a really, really good quote. And it's actually something that's interesting because there has been games which have had very interesting mechanics, very well polished, but the rest of the game is just miserable bad. So it ends up not really being considered that well. I mean, Mountain Blade Warband. Its combat is good. That's about it. Everything else is bad, really. Oh yeah, the NPCs are like lifeless. Uh, they don't... I get bored in my campaign so often because I can't play with other people. Like, it sounds funny, but like legitimately, if I could play with my friends, I don't think I'd get bored as much of Mountain Blade. I would just want to go around and have fun ass, like crazy escapades and, and fuck around as the Nords or whatever else. But I don't want to have to log on the next day to my, to my, uh, uh, my game and feel like I basically have no connection to the world or even to myself. And I try role playing too. When I play games, I role play even by myself when I'm single player, I try and role play. And it's just, kind of hard man when you're getting like captured by like dark whatever cultists you know and you're just like i don't like what <laughs> and you can't kill Wait, them because on. they're like way too high level and shit it's like uh... dark cultists that's perisno mod isn't it yes it is yeah <laughs> i freaking knew it <laughs> that's a good mod but yeah i i don't think i have any more to say well, all right, man. I appreciate you stopping by and, and staying through the pretty much the entirety. So other people in chat, feel free to give Limpos a breather for next week's podcast. So he's not the only person who has to stick through the entirety of it. And also, let's hope that everything with Card's family emergency um, goes all right. Hopefully, he gets some good news from that. Um, I'd like to thank, uh, once again, uh, Limpos and Card for stopping by. I will see you later, Limpos. I appreciate it. See ya. All right. I'm 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 all over the place personally. Tired. We've been going for a while. But I want to answer some questions before I leave and also talk about a couple more things. So first, let me message my girlfriend. Okay, so um, if you guys saw, actually the Toontown video just went live, so I'd like to watch it on stream, but I can't really, you guys don't get the views, so I need to still edit the monetization, the tags, and all of that stuff, but just letting y'all know, this is going live today, and um, I hope you guys will enjoy it, because I thought it was a very interesting tale. I'd love to watch... Would you guys like to do a stream every now and then, maybe like after my death of a game where 
I could just go back and kind of watch my own death of a game and kind of give you guys maybe some behind the scenes thoughts about it. I might end up unlocking that as a subscriber only stream or maybe give it only to my patrons or something. Just because I feel like that extra bit of content is like uh, behind the scenes anyway. And so it, it seems like it's like, um, that'd be a cool incentive to offer people. Uh, maybe even if you reach above junior detective rank on uh, Twitch as well. If you do, then, or sorry, on uh, Discord. If you reach above that rank, maybe I'll give you access to my little behind the scenes streams of giving you guys the the minute by minute or second by second breakdown of whatever videos I've covered. Cause I don't think I've really done that before, but probably cause I don't really like to watch myself <laughs> that much. <laughs> guys, you have to think about it. I listen to my own voice so much it, to the point to where it's just like, Oh my, like, I don't want to do it anymore. You know, like, because I have to, it's just part of the process. I have to cut through audio and, pull out the bad parts, listen to my voice with a fine um, home, have these nice headphones that pick up every little imperfection, you know, my mic setup, so it's like very controlled. So I'm hearing pure unadulterated my own voice. So it's like after a while, you literally start to hate your own voice. <laughs> you do, you, you start to hate your own voice. I love when I sing, I like my singing voice. I don't really like my talking voice or my speaking voice in the sense of like, I'm not, when I say I don't like it, I'm saying like I'm indifferent towards it. Like I'm not like, yeah, like I really want to listen to myself. So I find it hard to go back and listen to my own videos because I'm just like very critical. And so I'll hear like mistakes or I'll hear like certain pauses or cadences or whatever else like tempo is weird, too slow. And, I, and then I'm just critical of it. So I'm like my worst critic basically is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, cool. It looks like everybody's for that. Yeah, I think I'll unlock that for the higher end detective roles on uh, Discord so you can earn it. Because I'd like to have things so you guys can also feel like you can earn. Because when I say I want your support, <clears throat> let's just talk about that for a bit. When I say um, <laughs> trying to upsell your karaoke, <laughs> when I say um, when I say I need your guys' support, I want to quantify what that actually means because I, I think sometimes people get it twisted. They think support's just monetary, right? Support's just dollars. But think about this. Like, um, how much does a stream cost? A YouTube or, sorry, rather, a Spotify stream cost? It's a very, very small amount. But when they say it costs a price, what do they mean exactly? What they mean is actually that you're paying that money, right? You're reaching somebody, you've got an impression. So you're paying for an impression. But the interesting thing about impressions, and they work on YouTube as well, an impression is basically someone just watches your ad, is they're not a conversion yet, right? They haven't converted to an actual client. So if I'm trying to sell a product and I'm having a lot of people that are like tentatively interested, until they actually buy my product, of course, they're not supporting me. The way it works with like Spotify stream and YouTube and stuff like that is, Ultimately, of course, you're paid um, percentage of uh, a dollar on each view. But that being said, is watching a video mean you pay that money or does it mean somebody else is paying that? Well, ultimately, when you watch a video, for example, you are giving that person money, especially if you watch it without your ad block, right? You're giving them some sort of money from it. And so... Don't think about it as like, I don't have money to give somebody. So how do I, and not just me, like take this to anybody that you want to support. 
um, anybody that you believe in, anybody that believes in things that you believe in, right? Thing, someone that fights for things that you believe in, whatever that person is, content creator, maybe they're just entertaining, maybe they're really funny. Um, just giving them money, like Patreon, a donation, isn't the only way that you could support them. Just watching their video, just posting about their video, sharing their video, liking the video. It seems minuscule if just one person's doing it. But what if 10,000 people liked a video? That's a lot of likes. That's not even a tenth of my audience. What if a thousand people shared my video? Well, that's, that's a lot of shares. That means that thousands more have seen my video. So like, I'm just using myself as an example, obviously, because I'm here and I'm doing a podcast, but use another content creator you want as an example and just think that there's more ways to support than just monetarily. So like, you can show up for the podcast and talk and chat. That's supporting me because you're helping me engage me, engage conversation, create more discussion, and then ultimately, hopefully, maybe you could even learn something, right, as a bonus. So it's like, you don't have to think about support as just like, how do I, but I don't have money, so I can't give you money. It's like, there's so many ways um, that you can support somebody without giving them <laughs> This is not a give me money uh, call, by the way, guys. I, I appreciate that, Pojit. Um, he just gave me 500 bits. I appreciate that. Um, but no, it's... I, this actually wasn't a scam to get money from you guys. I appreciate it though. <laughs> I'm just kidding, man. Thanks for the support. No, but like at the end of the day, guys, like I do this for a living. Like I, I put this on as performance, right? But I do this for a living. Like, like I don't really do anything else. Like besides playing video games, besides thinking about video games, I have a girlfriend, I have a dog, I have friends, and I do like uh, martial arts uh, to keep myself fit. You know, that's that's kind of it. Like, maybe I watch anime sometimes. Maybe I watch TV sometimes. But are those my passions? No. My passion is video games. My passions are MMOs. My passions are martial arts. Um, my passion is learning. So those are all cool things to be passionate about. But when your passion becomes a career is when basically it, it's supported, right? It, it's your main source of income. So video game and content creation is my main source of income. So when you guys see me playing or leveling up in a game, leveling up in WoW or an Arc Age, like I'm playing, but I'm also working, you know? So it's like, it's, it's, it's unique in that sense that um, I, when, I'm, when I'm on the clock, if you will, I'm also just playing the games and I'm learning about them. So it's one of those things that I think early on, because the industry is so young, it's hard for people to maybe see all of that context. They just think, oh, you get, you got a million views on your SWOTOR video, so you're like a millionaire, or you've got like thousands of dollars or something, or or like they see like a lot of views and they think, oh, that means you have a lot of money. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't have a Patreon. I wouldn't ask for support if I didn't have enough money. You know what I'm saying? Like what, what I mean is, is that if I did have enough money, if I was like one of these YouTubers who was getting thousands of dollars a month, and I'm saying like five to 10, $15,000 a month, I would not feel comfortable saying to you guys, hey, I need you to support me because like I do this for a living. I, I'd say, hey, if you want to support me, you can. If you want to part with that, sure. But if I knew that I was getting paid enough money, I morally couldn't be all right with it. And that's just me personally. Call it a fault of me or whatever. Like maybe I need to be a better shill, for example. Um, maybe. I don't know exactly, but that's just kind of like I like to to believe in things and, and stick by things that kind of, you know, I guess matter to me. So that's just one of those things that matters to me where ultimately speaking, um, obviously, uh, 
you don't even have an AC. <laughs> I don't have an AC in here. <laughs> but people don't, people, but Huey, like, you also know me a bit more than other people. I think it's just easy to look at YouTube and think like, oh, this and that. And if you're wondering if I'm saying this because I'm being defensive of it, it's more so that I just, I would like to offer you guys that perspective. I don't know how much all of you get to see that, but that's what I'd really like to do with like a, going through one of my old videos and kind of breaking certain certain things down is that I can be critical of myself, but also tell you guys where I think this is really relevant or maybe something that you missed the first time you watched a certain kind of video. Ultimately, that's just really what I'm the most interested in. Like MMOs as a genre are the most interesting thing to me. So it means that like anything that forwards them as a genre is interesting to me. So discussion about it, hype about something, a new game, new studio coming out, a new innovation in the in the market. All of that is very interesting to me and appealing to me. That being said, I am also a human being that still has costs and things that I have to pay for. So it's like, I say that to tell you guys that like, if it was my way, if money wasn't an obstacle, for example, then basically I could talk about whatever I wanted to talk about. Think about that. I could go to Japan right now with my friends who want to go with me. And we could go film a series about me talking about the differences in Japan and how MMOs affect Japan and how multiplayer games affect Japan. And then we can go to Korea and talk about how MMOs are so different and how the economy, the MMO economy is started and basically like ran from Korea, right? We could talk about that, but it's like, how could I ever possibly have enough money to fly for thousands of dollars to another country, then fly to another country, make a video on it if I thought I was gonna get 100K views? Think about that for a second, guys. If let's say like um let's be generous here and say that my death of a game video Star Wars Galaxies I'll be generous and say that it took me only 2 months to make. So you might hear only 2 months and think what does 2 months mean? Well, 2 months means like every single day I was working on it. Every single day I was having to write, was having to research, was having to find articles. There's so much story about Galaxies, right? And then like when you look at it from that perspective, you can actually break down exactly how much money that video made for me. And you can literally see for yourself if you think that two months worth of work every single day would be worth the amount of money that I got paid for. And I think what you guys will find very often is that unless you're at the higher end of the YouTube stuff, it oftentimes isn't, right? Let's see if I can... Uh... I'll pull up some of my statistics for you guys because you guys know I'm very transparent. If you ever want to know how much money I make, I don't have a problem telling you guys that because as I always joke about, that only helps my case, right? Because <laughs> then you realize I don't make a lot of money <laughs> and then you're more likely to want to be supportive of me, whether you uh, watch my podcast or watch my videos or, or whatever else. Joy is now growing in my behavior core. <laughs> Thanks for your awesome content. I I appreciate it, uh, Kill Like a Sir. Um, you you made something trigger in my behavior core, as HK47 says. But uh, I appreciate the ten dollars and the support. It's so funny when you end up talking about money that that's usually when people start to donate to you. But I'm not as comfortable with that, so sometimes I feel weird when people give me money when I'm talking about money. When I talk about it, almost like it's like matter of fact for me, and less like it's like this means whatever else to me, right? Uh, all right, so. I'm going to show you guys the monetization that I've made on my Star Wars Galaxies video of all time. Like, I'll show you exactly how much money I made on that. Uh, where's my analytics? Here we go. 
and we can crunch the numbers together and we can figure out how much per hour, right? I would have got paid if I put all of that time into something. Right, so sorry. All right, so I had to look that up. Go back to analytics. All right, here we go. All right, so this is going to be organized by since uploaded. All right, here we go. So for the record, this video has a total of 532K views. 532K views on this video. It's a, it's a nearly a 40 minute video, 532K views. And since then, and it's been on, it's been up on my channel for two to three years. It made me $1,745 in two to three years. So if we just do the math there, right? Let's pretend it just magically gave me all of that money right after I worked, which it didn't, but let's say it did just for the sake of the discussion, right? There's the dollar amount. Now, if we talk about how much time I put into it, right? Like how much time did I put into, um, if I had to be generous, I would say at least five hours a day for 60 days or so. I mean, that, that's probably honestly being not high enough in terms of numbers. So now let's take the 1745 and d or divide that by the 300 hours. And it's like, I, en I ended up getting paid uh, $5.81 for making that video per hour that I worked on it. So when you think about it in that case, it makes a lot of sense why you still hear people like myself ask for support because you're like, you're, you're telling me I'm going to get paid less than minimum wage, work as hard as possible, give everything I have into a video, and nobody's going to watch it. This is because someone watched this video. Now let's go to one where somebody didn't watch the video as much. Like let's say I'll pick one of my videos that wasn't nearly as popular. In fact, I have a great one to use as an example. It was one that I launched just recently that didn't really do that well. It was my auto assault video, which is a, you know, it's a bit of a more obscure game, I'll admit, but it was one that was highly requested. So I thought that that would mean that it would have some level of popularity, right? And so now if we look at um, since published, this video has made me an estimated $150. Mind you, this is really early on. This video is only a month old, but if you think about that, $150 to work 15 minutes into a video, which means that my editor at least spent two, three days working on this, full days working on this, and I spent at least that as well. So we spend it, like, I'd probably say maybe I spend a couple more days than him usually, just because uh, a little bit more efficient than me. But you, you, you do those hours together, and it, then you're like, what? what? Why would I ever cover something that's not going to get watched? So now you guys understand and hopefully more um, of why YouTubers, maybe even your favorite YouTubers, can't necessarily um, make exactly the kind of videos they wanna make, is that once you get to a certain like tier, what, what, once you get to a certain uh, tier, that's when you can start to kind of like not really care about what you cover. And I'm talking about people who have, for example, um, large enough audiences. If you're getting at least a million views a month, for example, you're making enough money at that point to be like basically um, full time and take it seriously. And so people are getting millions of views in months. And so yes, there are people who do make a lot of money, but then there's people who are 
putting insane amounts of time and effort into making certain kinds of videos. And you have to remember, you know, those people in, in comparison are making pennies. So it's just like that should also tell you kind of why the market is the way it is. You know, going back to the whole MMO journalism thing, it's because like if you actually want to do like good MMO journalism, so to say, um, you run the risk of not maybe necessarily having as good numbers as you might need. Whereas if I did like sponsored videos, for example, I wouldn't need to worry about um, getting as many views. Right. So like whenever uh, whatever company asked me to do a sponsored video and they're like, hey, we'll give you like a thousand plus whatever dollars. I see that as like not being worth it because I, I don't see the point in taking a, m money in the short term just to ruin my reputation in the long term when I want to be in this forever. Right. Like this is my passion, my career. So like I don't want to. I don't want it to just do it for a couple of thousand dollars. That being said, I can't blame people who do because instead of having to rely on views, which is being more clickbait and getting more um, uh, clicks on your videos, you can kind of just do sponsored videos, which I'm not going to say that they don't have their own problems with them, right? Maybe like objectivity problems, subjectivity problems. Maybe you feel like somebody could mislead you. I'm sure there's a lot of problems that go with that. But um, yeah, so I don't know. That's my little breakdown of kind of how uh, content creation and stuff like that works. How is it estimated revenue? They can't give you an estimated check. When they say estimated revenue, it's like, I don't even want to rant about it, man, because like, I, I feel like it's just one of those things that I would rant about. But um, it, it, basically, long story short, um, what an estimated check means is based off of certain ad revenue, this is what's going to be paid out to you. When they say estimated, sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less. I would actually argue that with their estimations, they're pretty generous. Sorry, they're pretty, they're pretty pessimistic. So usually you'll get more than whatever they estimate. That being said, it's only just a little bit more than what they estimate. And the problem with the estimation is you don't know when you're going to get paid what. So as a YouTuber, you don't know when you're going to get paid what. Like I mean legitimately, you don't know when or how much money you're going to get paid. You know a range of days that you're going to get paid. And... You have um, an idea of how much money you made based off of your like previous month and you can kind of like figure it out on your own. The point being is that it's not clearly explained to you. So I, I think the whole estimated revenue, they kind of hide behind that a bit so they don't have to actually show you the analytics per se. But um, I don't know. That's just my opinion on it. Time to become a full-time uh, Fortnite cover. <laughs> a Fortnite cover. What was your background before going full-time? Did you study economics or psychology? Um, so I can give you guys that. By the way, any of you uh, else have any questions, just let me know. Um, just talking out loud right now. Uh, so when I was 16, I got a job for the first time. Young, poor kid, that kind of story. When I was 18, however, was the first time I got like a serious job. And that's when I was doing data entry at a construction company. And then I... Um, basically came up with a barrier survey like file which was like a hyperlinked adobe acrobat uh, pdf that showed you uh mappings of how buildings were outlined and, and which areas were penetrated with uh pipes and and cables and different things like that which is what my company specialized in so when i did that they were like well that's pretty cool so then they made me a field person a data entry in the field so i was like a foreman basically and then they made me a foreman right after that and then after that they realized that you know they should keep me in the office 
and and so they kept me in the office and I started doing cost estimation and then eventually I got bored of cost estimation and honestly just tired of it because it's very repetitive and it's just all about looking at big buildings and knowing how much they cost which is like why I'm very good at guessing things but not very fun to keep doing over and over again when you realize most of the buildings share very similar structure uh, structural uh, similarities right and so you realize like it's not as different as you might think at, at first you're like oh there's so many different kinds of buildings and then you're like oh but they're all made by the same fuckers and like they're designed the same way and i was never an architect so i was never on that front after that they uh i started doing project management which was just like kind of like being a foreman except you also sell so a project manager in construction sells work manages the work and then also um <clears throat> gets a check whenever like the work's completed or whatever so that's what i did for a while but i mean when I did project management, I worked at a small company, a, co- a small construction company, and then I worked at a big corporation. And the corporation was where I was working before the channel. So before I came here, I was working for a company um, that's, I, I obviously I'm not really going to say who they are, but put it this way, they're a Fortune 500 company and they're a company that's like billion dollars of revenue. So like they're a really big construction company that handles like insulation and, and general goods and stuff like that. I worked there for uh you know about a year and a half or so and then it kind of reached the point to where i just realized that they don't really listen to what i say like i have suggestions i'd tell them that there's a flaw in the way that they did something i'd say like it's better this way like i'd give them a compelling argument and they'd be like can't do it because of a protocol can't do it because of protocol can't do it because of protocol but then it started to get really annoying so like what started to happen is um and i don't think i've ever told this story before but what started to happen was um I uh, I noticed that um, a lot of the money that people would make, or rather the company would make off of certain things was because of the way that the company was designed. So like, this is going to be an economics like slash woke lesson right now. So congratulations, you guys are going to get a little bit learnt. But I, what I learned was that I sell these uh, products or I sell these um, jobs. These jobs are worth between a hundred thousand to a million dollars right any anywhere range of that and by the way that's just our specific section the entirety of the projects are hundreds of millions of dollars but just our section because we were a specialty contractor was just like you know between 100k and uh, a million and so they told me they're like oh yeah we'll give you three percent i'm like three percent three percent of what what i sold or the profit you guys made off of it they're like oh no it's just like um you make percentages off of the profit you make from it and i'm like but that means that if I sell work and I don't work here for another two to three years, it's possible that the work hadn't even started yet because construction doesn't just start automatically, right? There's permits and things like, so theoretically you could be selling work for years before you ever saw a check for it. And so I was like, what? Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know about that. And then all of a sudden there was a target goal where they told me when they signed me, they were like, all right, so within a year, if you're able to sell over a f- uh, over five hundred thousand dollars in sales, um, we'll give you a bonus, a five a five thousand dollar bonus. So I was like, okay, I was going to use that bonus to quit and be a YouTuber, by the way. <laughs> but what happened is they got me on a technicality because I never got it in writing. What he said was the next year within the ne- within the year, and so they got me off of a technicality because I joined three months into the year. So at the time at which he said that, he was right. By the end of the year, 
I didn't beat the target date. I was off by like 100K or whatever. But then I made I made one big sell right after. And by the way, I smashed that record. I think I was 750 when I when I when all was said and done. But um, at that point, they were like, "Well, you can't get the bonus because even though it's been eight months, we said within the year, so you're not going to get a bonus for the next two. But I'm like, but I literally sold all of this the month after that you guys said this. And then now you're trying to say that it hasn't been a year, but it, it, or it's been a year and it hasn't been a year. It's been a metaphorical year or a, or a technical year, if you want to call it that, but it hasn't actually been a year. Right. And so they, they do spoken contracts do count. The problem is, is that the way that they uh, ended up wording it, they can get away with it. Basically, it's pretty hard for me to dispute. And so I remember telling my boss about it and, and he had this like flippant attitude about it. Like he was kind of like, oh, there's not a whole lot that I can do. You have to talk to the Houston branch. And I'm like, Houston branch? I don't even live there anymore. I don't even work there anymore. And he's like, so I call them up. They don't want to give me the bonus because it's out of their pocket. And I'm like, okay. So I just sold all of this work. I don't get any of the bonuses for it. And then you guys want me to wait two to three years to get paid some checks all because you're paying me a decent salary, even though you overwork the shit out of me. I was like, this math ain't adding up for me. So I've always been that kind of person who likes to know how the inner workings of things go. And so as a project manager, you know how much you sell at, you know what margins you sell at, you know how much the material costs, you know how much labor costs, you know how much the company has to turn a profit on. You literally know everything economic-wise when it comes to selling a project. And so therefore, I'm dealing with these projects that are got million-dollar price tags on them and I'm getting like nothing from it. So like I, I kind of like had this revelation where I just work for a corporation and this corporation doesn't give a shit about me. I have, I have zero ownership. So it's like, what am I, what am I doing here? You know, like I'm not really passionate about this. And so I kind of saw like construction in a way of like, it was, it was, it helped me grow up. It helped me mature, but it also, uh, it held me back a lot from pursuing my dreams and my passions. Cause like in reality, I wanted to make content. Right. But I, I either didn't think I could, or I didn't think that I'd have money to do that. And so um, I got out of construction immediately, didn't get another job, and just went straight into YouTube. I'm not going to sit here and pretend it's been like, you know, buttery smooth transition. I obviously make, you know, nearly half as much money as I was making before. But that being said, the ceiling for me to earn is obviously much higher once I have a, a large enough audience to support the kind of content that I want to create, which is just time. That just takes time to get there. So it's just like... As long as I keep working at servicing the niche that I have, eventually that niche is going to support me. And once they support me, then I can make whatever kind of content I want to make. And so like, that's kind of a big thing for me. But you'll learn about me as a person, guys, that ultimately I'm somebody where once I learn how the, the economics of something works, I can't be happy with just a small percentage. Like I'm, I'm very much like I want some level of ownership. So whenever I found out the margins that they had to sell things at because of the way that the company was set up because of all of the overhead. I was just like, man, this is the problem with companies and video games. It was such an alliteration. It was such a good comparison between the two. I could look at like video game corporations and then compare it to like my company and be like, it's literally the same exact problems. It's because it's a problem of being a corporation when you're driven primarily for profit you lose creatives, you lose assets like myself because we don't want to be a part of some big machine where we don't matter, right? And so developers have left these big companies. Bioware has lost so many of their good developers. For example, Obsidian has lost certain developers. Like so many of these like old school 
royalty game development places have lost a lot of the original talent that worked there. And I think that's a big reason. It's just because like ultimately whenever you join a corporation, it in some way is is very constraining. It's very hard to be creative in. It's very hard for somebody to take your ideas seriously when they have like six chain of command right above them, right? So I went from working at a small company, two small companies, where I basically knew the owner personally, and that has its problems as well, but at least I had some level of influence compared to working for a corporation. You kind of, you've got to go through so many checks and balances, you can't even get things done on your own. And uh, yeah, I did not like that shit. So In the end, it was just like, once I realized I could make at least enough money to live off of, I was like, well, that's good enough for me, because uh, I don't want to do this other shit, so... You know, maybe my dad or my parents, uh, I should say my dad, my, my mom passed away. But I always say parents, but don't take offense to that. Or I'm not trying to be weird about it either. It's just a habit. Sometimes you say parents, but uh, um, my dad obviously wasn't very happy with it. He was like, you know, you gave up this amount of money for like working, a, you know, a solid job, blah, 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 401k insurance. I had all of those things, right? But all of it ain't mean nothing. I ain't got you. That's video games, by the way, is the you. So it was just like, I thought to myself, why am I driving 45 minutes to an hour to get to work when I can do all of my work remote? And so whenever I would tell my boss this, which by the way, they agreed to whenever I joined the company, they were like, oh no, we can't do that anymore because um, something from above, like blah, 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 regulation. And I was like, okay, well, that's a... Uh, not something that you should tell somebody after they've moved already and they're kind of already remote, right? The next thing you know, I'm going into some random office where I have like no ties to anybody there. And the amount of time that people waste in offices, guys, especially construction offices, I have so many stories I could tell you guys, but like I personally think that the meme of hard work is just overblown at this point. I think whenever people say, just work hard, just work hard, Nothing is more harmful than just saying that. And the reason for that is because you work smart, not hard. If you keep banging on a wall with your head as a means of breaking through the wall, you're working hard. You're working damn hard, but you're working pretty stupid, right? Like you can design a tool that can do that much more effectively than banging your head on a wall, right? But hey, you're working hard, right? So just keep working hard. Well, no, you don't want to keep working hard because... Working hard and not working smart means that you're basically overworking yourself for less money because you're already not going to get as much money as you are deserving because you're an employee. Uh, most of the time, you're getting paid a very small amount of whatever it is that you're earning. That's just kind of how it goes. Yeah, work smart, not hard. Exactly. And so, like, I think it's actually a very poisonous mentality when people say work hard, work hard, because at the top level, most people work hard. So it's not really an indication of anything, right? At the lower levels, people work really hard. Janitors work really hard, right? My dad works in a food service, a GM. Like, he works very, very, very hard, harder than I work, right? Or does he? Because it depends on your definition of hard, of difficulty. Is difficulty expending physical energy? Is difficulty spending men mental energy? Is difficult doing something that someone else can't do? is difficult doing something that other people won't do, right? There's, there's different definitions of what difficult means, but that ultimately speaking, what's hard for somebody might be impossible for somebody. Else. And yet working hard can eventually get you to at least a factory worker level, right? I'm saying like if you're just a person who wants to work 
if you at least work hard, you can be a factory worker. But not everybody wants to be a factory worker. In fact, most factory workers get paid pretty shit and they get treated pretty shitty. So it's like you don't want to be a factory worker. You want to be like the foreman to the factory worker. Or, you you know, like what it, maybe not the factory period. Maybe you want to work in something else. But like working hard is what they want you to do when they want you to just work in a kind of a job where maybe you just put your head down and do a bunch of the same meaningless repeatable actions. And so you don't have to worry about working smart. For those of us who are self-employed, working hard is about survival, basically. Like, that's maybe that's why it's not, never something I could quite relate to, Pojit, but it's like, exactly. Like, when, when you talk about working hard, for me, it's like, if I don't work hard, I don't, I'm not going to eat. Like, I'm not going to be able to pay rent, you know? So it's like, it's different whenever the onus is on you. Some people don't like that. Some people just want to collect a paycheck. They don't want to have to deal with, like, this and that story. And, this, like, they, they want to be able to turn off work as soon as it's 5 p.m., and by all means, you can be that person, but you probably won't be very successful if you are. Because if you treat your life like it's just a job and not a career or a passion, that's going to that's gonna show. You're not going to make as much money. You're not going to be as happy. You name it. I'm still working for the man. We're on for making your own way. And that's the thing is, is that not everybody can make their own way, but I think people absolutely can at least start to realize their value that you have a lot of value, uh, if, if you have a lot of value. I'm, I'm, okay, that's a little bit of um, expectations here. I see myself as having a lot of value when I work at a company. Hopefully you guys do too. Like ho hopefully you guys also see it as like, you have a lot of value when you work at a company. Like if you don't feel that way, maybe you can work on yourself or work on ways to get better at your job. But like ultimately, I would, I would probably say that a good portion of people um, feel like they work pretty hard. They like their work ethic. And so I think that... Um, Maybe you won't be able to have your own business because not everybody's supposed to run their own business. Not everybody's supposed to be an entrepreneur. But maybe you could, um, for example, negotiate a raise because you at least know that you're not worth whatever they're currently paying. Or maybe you go find a job that maybe doesn't pay you as much or pay you more than whatever you're working, but it's actually better for your health and overall growth and development as a person. And if you're working at a job that you don't like and you don't feel like you have any passion towards it, well, then try and find a way to to ma uh, marry that with another passion or a hobby of yours until eventually you can kind of like either uh, replace that hobby as a as a career a career focus or you can find some way to support it with your actual job until maybe eventually you can make the decision are you going to do it something or are you going to do something seriously with it or are you just going to use that money that you make from your job just to enjoy whatever activity it is that you want to enjoy so it's like really i don't I don't preach for people to be self-made necessarily unless they want to be because you have to want to be if you want to be self-made. Um, I preach more of um, just know what you're worth and know that, you know, corporations and companies, they aren't going to give you that random raise just because you're a nice guy. You know, it's like, it's like you kind of have to kind of have to speak up if you want to get whatever you uh, think you deserve. And that's why it's important to know your worth, know your value as a person, know what you offer the company and know that at some point you have to be willing if you want to stand for something you have to be willing to walk away that's a really hard thing to do it's like super hard but it's easier in this day and age to walk away and go work for another company and get paid more money than it is to stay at the same company get no percentage and the next thing you know you're 10 years 15 years that was another thing too is like i went to a business meeting once we had this huge like auditorium they had like a guest speaker because it's a big corporation guest speaker this and he's talking about oh this and you know whatever the hell he was selling, right? And then um, everybody's kind of sitting around. They're like, yeah, we've had people who've worked here for 15 years. They're going to get X amount of like bonus. And I was like, 
that's cool, but if I worked here for 15 years and I didn't own a piece of this company, I would consider myself a failure. And I know that's just me personally, but like I would find that most people would kind of agree with that. If you worked for, for such a long time at a company, wouldn't you like to have at least some part of ownership? Because otherwise, like if you're just working a salary job at the same place for 10 years, you're never getting more influence, never getting more money or barely getting any more money. You're actually harming yourself more than if you just left and went and worked at another job. But that's the current market and I don't have the energy nor the time or effort to be able to break all of that down because that shit's so complicated. It also depends on what you want to do, what you want to be involved in. Maybe your field is saturated. Maybe you want to be a doctor, so you have to go uh, through so much schooling. I've been several times in life where I'm barely afforded the rice for the day. That type of thing makes you appreciate hard work in a different way. It does, especially because you understand it's not like something you fetishize, I guess is what I was trying to say. Pojit is like, I don't like when people fetishize hard work. They're like, oh, I just, like, I'm a poor kid from the ghetto. I just worked hard to get here. No, 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 no. I'm from the ghetto. I didn't just work hard to get here. I got lucky. People helped me. I made friends. Like, people told me I could do it. It wasn't just me. I'm Like, self-made is kind of an illusion, actually, if you think about it. It's like, you're never truly self-made because you're not truly yourself. But I, I'm not going to get that deep on you guys. But I'll just say that, like, being self-made is kind of like, it, it doesn't really exist. Like, same thing as, like, overnight success. It's like, in some way, you live in a society you're impacted by other people. Are you really like self-made or something? Or are you just more like a bit of an American thing, isn't it? An extension of the American dream. Yeah, so Uji, that's the, um, I call that the American scheme. And what I mean by that is that the American scheme is that money above all else. And so therefore, join the rat race to slowly make more and more money and save up more and more money. And that's the American scheme, so to say. To me, the American dream is finding whatever it is that you're passionate about, finding a way to make a business out of it or find other people who can work with them. And then uh, after you do your society and your country a service, that makes money, right? That's what being American to me kind of meant. Um, it, it obviously means different things to other people, but like as a family of immigrants, like, you know, my great grandpa came here um, from Mexico, like my, my, my dad's from the border. As somebody who's been an immigrant, or at least been in a family of immigrants, it's just like, that's kind of how I look at it is like, it was a place you can go, and you can actually pursue it as what you pursue it is whatever it is that you want to pursue, whatever it is that you're passionate in. And there's some possible way usually in America, you can find a way to make a living out of it. It's just that the problem is, is that when you're told that the American scheme is the American dream. Next thing you know, you give up your dreams and passions to have your own company, to, to work for a company that really cares about a certain topic, and instead you just, quote unquote, work for the man, right? Like, I think Daedalus used that idiom, and it's used very often, but work for the man usually implies, like, you kind of just collect a paycheck, and maybe you don't necessarily, like, like them that much or necessarily agree with their practices. But I think that happens because, essentially, like, the American scheme is, is that in order to become successful... You need to do it in this very specific kind of way, but that ultimately that's just not true. There's so many ways to be successful. And in fact, we talk about it uh, a lot. And I talked about it in my APB video. APB had like 100 million plus dollars put into the game. 
is if money was all the only thing that games required, then the games with the biggest budget would always be the best. But it's not always the case, right? And it's because there's still, even if there's business and the business is covered, big enough budget, big enough marketing, whatever else, the art is still a part of it, right? The art is still there. You still have to acknowledge the art. My American dream is to find out what the black hole is doing on Fork Knife. Fork Knife. Like, oh yeah, that's a huge part of success. There is no right or wrong way to success. There are guidelines, but there's no right way. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think that that's my biggest problem in America, Carlo, is that they kind of tell you that there's a way and there, there isn't really a way. You kind of have to go your own path a bit if you want to find it. And like getting roped into just working a nine to five for somebody else's like interest and not caring about any of the shit that you work with yourself. Like for example, I've worked at a movie theater. I've worked at a grocery store. I worked, I worked at a Kroger. Um, I've worked uh, where else? A uh, restaurant. So those are the other jobs that I worked. And are those jobs like was I passionate about them? No. Did I just collect a paycheck? Absolutely yes. Was there still something like inviting and like positive about those experiences? Absolutely. But if I would go like if you could ask me right now, would I go and be a popcorn cleaner at a movie theater again? I wouldn't. Why wouldn't I? Because it's not what I find fun, and it's not what I feel like um, I'm best at. Like, I don't think I'm the best cleaner, per se. <laughs> I'm, not the, I'm not the best janitor. So it's like, I, I quit that job after like two weeks because I remember just thinking like, man, people are really, really dirty at movie theaters. And I don't know if I feel like dealing with that. And what I mean is like other people are very dirty. They just leave literally like entire things of food. And like, you're just like, what? You couldn't just go throw this away? It just seems like it was more effort to leave it here than it was to just throw it away. And then like spill drinks everywhere because people leave the drinks under the seat. Point being is like, I've worked hard and bad and not fun jobs and jobs I didn't give a shit about. But one thing that I always did, and this is what I'll leave you guys with because I've gone on for way too long today. I got to go work on making my video live. Is that one thing I always had in my mind is that eventually I can get where I want to be. And what I mean by that is that I had my visions and, and goals set somewhere else. And so throughout that time I was working at these places, even as a young kid, I was always learning. I was always like, how can I learn programming? I learned Java, right? Uh, JavaScript. I was like, how can I learn website development? Maybe I can use Wix or uh, WordPress or something like that. Like, you know, maybe I can learn how to code a game, start messing around with game engines. And it's like, you have to keep trying things as a person to know what your calling is in life. If you just stay in your bubble and work in your bubble of a job, then you'll never necessarily know what's your best calling at life. And that to me, without sounding too preachy, is one of the like worst things to think about for me personally. It's to think that there's people out there in the world who feel like they can't be who they want to be and worst off, they don't know who they are and they feel like they're lost. They don't know where to go. And I'll tell you guys, I've been there myself and I know what that feels like and the only cure for it is going out and doing things. Whatever. Go join a and d club. Go join, go to Magic the Gathering Friday nights Go do a, a Magic the Gathering uh, arena tournament. Go do a LARP party. Go to a convention. Go uh, come on to my podcast. Go, go to my uh, discussion uh, Discord. Like have a, have a discussion about an MMO or an RPG you like. Like point being is like you, you, you want to always support and love the hobbies that you find yourself doing the most. Like if you're a gamer, of course you want to play games and talk about games the most. But also find a way to go out there and maybe possibly impact something or be impacted by something. For example, if you love cosplay, maybe go to Comic-Con and you can see what 
kind of passion is there and you'll realize man there is something here like going to pax in 2011 for me is probably one of the single biggest life uh, experiences i've ever had for a number of reasons right that was the first time i ever got laid but <laughs> story for another time um the the first pax i ever went to in, in seattle was was like a magical experience because i didn't know that conventions of nerds existed I didn't know that. I didn't know that you could go to a convention and people were dressed up as like uh, Samara, like Mass Effect characters. Like when I went back in 2011, people were dressed up as like Mass Effect characters and it looked incredible. The amount of time and effort these people put in. I was just like, that's insane, man. These people are so passionate. And for what? They're not even getting paid. They're just doing this because they love it. And then I walked around and I'm looking at all of these booths and seeing all the developers there and they're talking to the, to the audience and they're getting feedback directly from people. And you're seeing people talk about games. Oh, I love this booth. This game was awesome. And then of course, like going to the tabletop convention and, 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 uh, Philly was, was even better of an experience in the sense that it made me realize what's been missing so much in MMOs and it's the community. And, uh, I say all of that to say that you never know, maybe you go to a convention like that. And all of a sudden, you'll be inspired to write. You'll be inspired to code. You'll be inspired to go make your own fan club. Whatever it is, like, you'll only ever know if you just put yourself out there. So, I don't know. I guess that's my, my final bit of advice. I'm pretty tired and hot as hell in here. So, I think that's a good time as any to uh, stop the podcast. We went on pretty long today. And I've got some work to do still. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, it makes it sound like I just met a random person, but no, it was a girl that I met in SWOTOR, in my guild, and when I went to PAX, I went there for uh, SWOTOR primarily. Guild Wars 2 was there as well, and so was the Secret World, so I'm not going to say that um, SWOTOR was the only reason I was there, but like it was a big reason why I went, because many of my guild members went as well, and we got to talk with Daniel Erickson and talk with the developers of uh, SWOTOR. I even talked to um, developers from Guild Wars 2 as well. And I had never had that experience before. I thought of developers as like sacred beings, you know, but then all of a sudden I'm having a conversation with them and I'm like, wait a minute, I know something they don't know. That was really when it started to click in my head. I was like, man, maybe I do know some shit. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe I am kind of, I have a penchant for this or maybe I am good at this because I'd be talking to a developer and I would tell them about a mechanic in a game. They'd be like, oh yeah, hmm, I haven't heard about that one. And I'm like, really? You haven't thought about a mechanic in another very popular game that's in your exact genre? The point being is like, I realized they're human beings, just like me or you, right? Developers are human beings. And so you want to become a developer. Nothing is stopping you, right? Like it, you don't need to be like born a certain way to be a developer. It's not like you have to have a developer brain or you're just a developer when you grow up. You could go be a QA tester. And next thing you know, you're designing a world or a level. Or maybe even just writing for something. Like maybe video games aren't your passion in terms of career. Maybe you don't want to get involved in them. But maybe just getting involved in them, period, makes you feel much better about your other uh, prospects in your career and your life. And I think that's a big part that video games serve in community is like, yes, at the simplest sense, they're mindless ind indulgence and an entertainment that just helps you kind of waste your time. Um, but on a deep level, that can be much more. It can be like, working together it can be building something together with a community it can be feeling uh accepted and understood like when you go to a convention 
So, yeah, like, those were, like, the biggest experiences. I talked about my work experience and then, like, going to that PAX back in 2011. And I was a young boy back then. I was, like, 18, 19. That was just, like, I mean, a total life-changing experience. Really. Like, going to a convention like that just told me I can be who I am. I can be a nerd. Like, there's nothing wrong with being a nerd, you know? My brother from another mother. May I present you with a solution? Enjoying the fire. The world is born. Uh, the, the world is burning. Just enjoy the bad. You're too nihilist to find meaning in things. Well, maybe we'll talk about philosophy at some point, but I'm more of like an existentialist myself where meaning is only what you create. So if you're finding that you're bored or you have no meaning in life, it's because you need to, you need to create it yourself. You need to find it, right? It doesn't mean that you're doomed forever. It just means that it's there. It's out there. It's somewhere. Just got to find it. All right, um, that's it though. No more goodbyes. I'll see you guys later. I'll have that Toontown video out within the next hour, so look forward to that. And also make sure to like and subscribe. And uh, no, I'm just kidding, but you know, support me in whatever way you guys can. I appreciate it as always. And I'm out of here. Later, guys. I just threw my pencil, so it's like I was metaphorically done.